Greetings and welcome to episode 29 of Lay Radio, the show that talks about the universe of Elite and the development of the latest game in the franchise, Elite Dangerous. I'm your host, Second Apprentice Fozzer Forrester, and joining me on the show tonight, we have the ever-present Lay Radio crew, the Wizard Lord, Chris Jarvis. Hello. The Wizard King, John Stabler. Good evening. And finally, the gooey blob himself, Alan Stroud. That's awesome. What a great <laughs> intro. You, you, have, you have obviously picked up stuff from John. John did a great intro for me the other week. That's top-notch, Foz. Well done. In this episode, we talk about the arrival of the beta players to the Elite Dangerous Party. We talk about the next round of Alpha and the start of the premium beta. There's a small discussion on the perception of Frontier's pay-to-test model as seen from outside the Elite community. In DDF, we talk about the lifeblood of your ship, that of fuel. We talk about fiction progress and community questions. And we may end up talking a little bit about that other game we are all excited about, Chaos Reborn. So let's get started. Mr. Jarvis, tell us about the week that was. Uh, the week that was has still has lots of audio editing in it. Um, there was a, I noticed someone had written to us about the, the fact that it, there has been a you know a massive wait for the next Escape Velocity. You know, all, all I can all I can do is reiterate that the the audio books for uh, Fantastic Books are they are it is a massive massive job <laughs> and really doesn't allow for very much time to get Escape Velocity finished. Um, I mean, honestly, if, if you're waiting for Escape Velocity, no one wants to finish it more than me. I'm really keen to get that that done. But at the moment, I, you know, I just can't justify stopping work on the audiobooks when there's, there's you know, there's paying backers who are waiting for their lovely box sets and, uh, and CDs and things. So that's You know that. what's going to happen now, though, that people are going to just offer, offer to pay you to finish your early, <laughs> Escape Velocity I'm, <clears> I'm not stop them doing that you know if people want to if people want to pay me for escape velocity or if people want to you know pick it outside frontier developments offices with signs saying make you know escape velocity official fiction i i'm not going to stop anyone doing that but as it stands you know we've got i've got five audiobooks to produce and and they need to happen i wouldn't care <laughs> but you, you kind of left it on a really exciting episode as well i know i know and in my defense i, I had wanted to wrap up this series of escape velocity before last year the the end of the year and various things came up and it just didn't happen. And once it didn't happen, I then ran out of time to do it in entirety. Without trying to sort of tie yourself down, have you got a, a time in your head when you think this will all be done and you'll be able to put Escape Velocity back on the, back on the schedule? It's, it's difficult because um, even though I've got my head around obviously doing the audio drama stuff and I, I'm kind of, you know, I could predict timescales for that, doing fully unabridged audio books, that's a new project for me. So... I've, I've kind of, I've, you know, I've even had to say to Dan that it's, it's very hard to work out timescales until you've finished at least one. <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? To give you an idea of how long it takes to do it. Um, I mean, as I'm working on this, you know, the, the, the first book, I'm looking at how long each part of the process is taking. So the more of it I do, the more I can predict how long the job is going to take. But there's, there's kind of different approaches I need to take to the, to the, the five projects in total which makes it very difficult to come up with definite timescales. Like I said, I'm going to be disappointed if it's not ready for Fantasticon. No, that's fair enough, mate. We'll take you off the spot and ask you maybe, uh, how did your interview with uh, Gideon go? The interview with Gideon went really well, and it was you know, an absolute pleasure. And, and it, you know, it was really nice to be able to interview someone whose work I had previously known before, obviously really knowing about their involvement in Elite or the fact of being a book. So, yeah, nice to interview someone whose work I've actually read uh, and really enjoyed. <laughs> And yeah, it was a bit eye-opening, really, because you, you look at someone like Gideon um, and obviously the buzz around him and the stuff that Marcus Gibbs has said about you know, it being a significant release. 
But actually, whether it's kind of humor or whether it's just self-deprecation or whether it's, you know, a genuine lack of confidence, if you think of Gideon as someone from the outside who's kind of made it in terms of having a five book series and a major movie made of his books, from his point of view, you know, he's not happy. Sorry, it's too far for me to go to say he's not happy with the situation. But I mean, he's still, as you can hear from some of the stuff in the interview, you know, he still feels that there is a huge gap in the understanding about the success of his books and the position of himself as a kind of superstar writer. Um, you know, I'm just, it's really eye opening that you could, that could be something that you would aspire to. And then you sort of think, well, God, I could get there and still be unsatisfied. And that for me, that was really interesting. And I mean, that sounds like it was a bit of a downer, but actually that's been one of the uh, the funniest writer interviews I've listened to in a, in a long time, actually. I thought, okay, he was very self-deprecating, but uh, some, of the, you know, some of the banter you guys had, I thought I was just, I was literally laughing my ass off in the car. He's a genuinely very funny guy. And I mean, we, we didn't really cover it in the interview, but um, he has a website, GideonDefoe.com, which by the looks of it, he hasn't even updated in five years. But nevertheless... <laughs> The stuff he's got on his website is very funny. The web page, the title at the top of the web page is important stuff I am doing with pie charts. And it says, hi, this is the website of writer Gideon Defoe. I've just called it that so you can read my website at work and people will think you're, you know, working hard away. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's genuinely, genuinely a very funny guy. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a pleasure. I think this is probably one of the biggest uh, misconceptions of his work is that I honestly thought that, you know, since Ardman have actually made a film of, uh, of his books, that they're all sort of like kid stories, but they're not, are they? No, they're not. And I mean, it's just, yeah, I think if you, I think there are points if you read them to kids, there'd be certain sections you get to, you think, oh, I might skip over this. Uh, <laughs> and I think, you know, not only it was compounded by the fact that Pirates in an Adventure with Scientists is essentially a story about Charles Darwin and evolution. So there's, huge problems with that you know in the kind of mass market in america and you've then got you know i can't remember if you said on the interview but there's it was renamed in america to rather than it being pirates in an adventure with scientists it was pirates and a band of misfits or something which kind of doesn't really you know doesn't really sell it but yeah i mean i'm anticipating that an awful lot of what we're saying here is, is probably going to be cut so i'll, I'll wrap it up there <laughs> I would suggest not, actually, but okay. Uh, let's move on. John, what have you been up to, sir? Um, well, I'm loving these new show notes, Foz, because you've gone to the effort to actually remind <laughs> us of what we've been doing. So, um, well done on that. Um, <laughs> so, according to your notes, this is what I've been up to. Um, <laughs> um, I've been playing some chaos. You know, uh, we've already mentioned the Kickstarter, uh, and oh, it's come to me first, so I can break the news that chaos has hit its funding target. Hey! So there you go. So Insert round of applause here. Yeah, uh, which also means Mr. Stroud's going to have to write another book, which I'm sure he'll want to tell us about. But um, <laughs> way to yeah, steal but, his thunder, John. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can cut that bit. It's fine. I, I'm just stealing it all tonight. Um, yeah, been playing a lot of chaos, um, and the, well, the big news was that uh, Alan and I got to sit down and do an interview with Julian Gollop. And how was that, mate? Well, it's it's you know it's pretty awesome, you know, meeting one of you know, and he is a hero to me. Uh, because Chaos definitely, you know, my top five games of all time. Um, so I, I was doubly excited, not just to see it coming back, but also to snag an interview with him. And we got to talk about a lot of fun stuff, you know, a lot of the burning questions that we had. And also, because Chaos has got a, a prototype out, the four of us played um, 
and kind of recorded a video of two games, which I put on the Lave Radio YouTube channel. Check it out if you want to have a look, people. And that was a good laugh. Um, and apparently, a lot of people were quite happy with it, even though it went out pretty much unedited, uh, simply because, you know, it came across that we were chaos geeks and we were having a good time. Yeah, I must admit, this is a game that all four of us played uh, back when the, the Spectrum days. But I mean, just going back to your interview, I mean, it's been quite a year for you, if you think about the fact that you've not only managed to interview uh, David Bray, but you've also managed to interview uh, Julian Gollop as well. It's a, a canny couple of months for you. Well, I didn't interview David Braben. I was yeah, just kind of stuck. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. So we, did, yeah, we never actually let you any, anywhere near David Braben. We stuck you <laughs> off to one corner and, and gave you a, a video camera with no well, film in it to tell you to uh, to video. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I was just too starstruck. But yeah, for me, um, Julian Gollop, you know, he's on par with David Braben for me, just in terms of you know amount of time playing games. Uh, I think David Braben's obviously a bit more of a well-known name. Well, I don't know. Is he? Do you think he is? Um, I, well, like you, I definitely put them sort of side by side, really, in terms of you know their influence that they had on me growing up. So you know, maybe maybe I spent more time playing Elite than I did uh, Chaos. But you know, again, Chaos had this wonderful way of sort of leaving a lot to your imagination. Uh, you know, the graphics were such that you know you built a story around the uh, the game board in the same way that you built a story around Elite. So yeah, they're very very similar in my mind. I think, I think Braben is a bigger name, though, because I think Elite, I think as a game, because of the nature of the gameplay and the, the huge open world and exploration and the 3D and all the things it did that were just groundbreaking in terms of technology and gameplay style, I think that's what's kind of made Elite and David Braben and Ian Bell household names. Whereas I think Julian is very well known among certain types of gamers who play certain types of games. If you're into strategy games, you will know Julian Gollop's name because... You know, he's as far as I'm concerned, he's never written a dud, um, and he's you know the rules are always brilliant and the balance is always brilliant. But I think if you're not into, I think if you're not into strategy games, I think maybe that can pass you by. Whereas I don't think you could really be unaware of Elite. Does, is that fair? Yeah, it is. But at the same time, there's still you know he's still done the iconic games that even if you're not into strategy games, you're going to recognise. I mean, if you just say XCOM, you know, Enemy Unknown, even if you're not in strategy games, that's a game you're going to have heard of. Yeah, pe- people know people know the big games that have been that have been released. But I think in terms of a kind of cult of personality, I think Julian's always been quite in the background, just just quite just very ha- happily content producing games, putting them out there, letting people like them. And I think it's only really been in the last I don't know maybe ten years that I think some of those classic designers I think have maybe come forward a bit more as you know, as personalities, you know, because people are interested in. And I I think it is partly because of that thing where there's an awful lot of, you know, senior game developers who obviously started off when gaming was a very different environment. They've gone through this process like Julian has of working for a big games company and producing games for them. And they're now actually kind of standing out on their own and doing their own thing with indie game development. And I think as part of that, they're having to kind of put their names forward, you know, so people like... Uh, Chris Hecker, who who had a huge thing a few years ago with his spy party prototype. You know, he's not someone that people knew about back when he worked for a big big games company. Or Jonathan Blow, who did Braid. You know, these are people that have kind of really pushed themselves forward in terms of themselves because they are essentially making a very personal independent game rather than designing something for a big label. Let's go back to John and say, John, how about the highlight of your week? Could it have possibly been that the fact that you wrote some uh, some chaos fan fiction that was actually read by Julian? Um, well, yeah, yeah, good point. He seemed to like it, but uh, there's no accounting for taste, I guess. <laughs> 
yeah, it's um, it's available on the Chaos forums. You could just go and find it there. It's just called Chaos Fiction. It's in there if you want to go and read it. If you don't, I don't blame you. It's uh, you know, it's a bit of fun. There's been some okay reactions. There's been some you know feedback, important feedback. I don't know why, but um, I kind of decided not to bother with any elite fiction really because I just didn't. I felt out of my depth with that. Yeah. But whereas I felt that the chaos universe was so unexplored that I could have a bit of fun with it. So that's why I did it. Well, I've got to say, I mean, I read it and I, I enjoyed it. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's no you know, Darth Maul in a Cobra chasing down Starbuck or anything, you know, like I could produce. But it was still, you know, it's, it's quality work, mate. And I highly recommend anybody to go out and, and check it out. Oh, that means a lot to me. Thanks. No worries at all. Right. And what have I been up to before we come to Alan's big reveal? Um, not a lot, actually. I haven't actually been doing much in the Elite Universe. I have been to see Captain America, the Winter Soldier, which was quite good. I have to say, now that uh, that's gone out, uh, it does make Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., a show that I've been sticking to for the majority of the first season, sort of pay off a little bit. That was a show that was very slow to start off with, but does something that uh, there isn't a show actually on TV that... Uh, has done this before and that is it ties itself in with the uh, you know the marvel films so yeah when thor came out the the show tied into that and now that captain america's out the show has its latest episode tied into the captain america film so that's quite an interesting bit of uh, of tv um history being made there and hopefully it should mean that marvel gets a uh, a second run on the season for tv shows aside from that you've got mate rageous claim there but uh, <laughs> we'll let it go well which one the history's been made. That's <laughs> no, a bold statement, yeah. But at the same time, when have you known a TV show that's actually tied into a feature film? Pokemon. <laughs> no, a real TV show. Transformers the movie. Tied into the TV show in what way? Transformers the cartoon series. Did not in any way, shape or form relate to the feature film. Yes, it did. No, it didn't. Yes, it did. No, it didn't. Go back to 1987 and watch it. You will find that it did. There was actually... <laughs> You'll find you're completely wrong. Really? So, in what I way? For, I was hoping for a better example, though, to be fair than those. Okay. But... Well, you know, it's it's my childhood. I'm I'm kind of, you know... And and uh, I haven't spoken for half an hour. It <laughs> <laughs> was a MacGyver movie, I will say that. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, tell me that didn't tie into the feature film. Yep. Really? Yeah, the context of the original series is that she's moved away from the... Uh, uh, the school where she had all the trouble in the film and she's starting again in a new uh, uh, new place, etc, etc so it does tie into the continuity of the film. What you're, what you're suggesting though is kind of his midway through continuity yeah, flips, yeah. which is, is a little bit different and that's, you know, that's interesting in itself. You've got some of that I guess in, in The Matrix, you know where it's, it's tying between different um, different yeah, mediums yeah. so, you know, so that kind of works a little bit. Um, some of the stuff recently with, um, wasn't it Defiance that tied in between a TV series and a computer game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, very recently that was done. Yeah, so there is quite a lot of, of this starting, going on. Yeah, so maybe it's starting. Maybe this is something that we're going to see more and more of. Well, it's, it's, all, it's all sort of Henry Jenkins theory stuff, which is part of my PhD. Excellent. And for those of us that uh, don't know who Henry Jenkins is? Uh, he's an academic theorist from America. Uh, he has a blog, henryjenkins.org, and he is the man that coined the phrase transmedia storytelling, which is what you're talking about. Yeah, I should actually go and read that. So, enough about me. I seem to be boring. Mr. Stroud, you are not boring because I've been following your week quite closely. Tell us what's been going on. Uh, not much. Should we get on with the show? <laughs> not a chance. <laughs> I'll tell you what, breaks news we haven't already heard about. 
I, I can't, can I? <laughs> you, basically all, <laughs> you basically said it all. Um, uh, I don't know. Um, I, I, I wrote some music for um, for Chris uh, this week. I've uh, I started writing some music for um, uh, just some sample pieces for the audio books. Uh, Chris has given me a nice list of topics to go through, so I managed to get a bit of time in the loft and, um, and write some sample pieces, uh, which has been good. I think that's that's that. There's nothing else I can tell you that you guys haven't already covered. Chaos say, why don't you go in a little bit more detail then? Okay, well, Chaos Reborn is obviously is a big thing in that you know it's been funded and we're all uh, huge backers of uh, of the game and really really pleased for Julian because you know John and I interviewed him and the one thing that much as you know he he produced things that were formative to both of our childhoods the key thing that i think that came across from the interview was that just how nice a guy he is we came at the end of that thinking you know we really want him to succeed we really want this to happen and um the kickstarter was looking okay but it was looking a little bit shaky with about four days to go so i'd already been in discussion with julian about sort of uh, developing the mythology and the the backstory around chaos and uh, and chaos reborn and the you know the premise of the world that um, it's being explored and so on and so forth, and I just you know um, at that point I said look you know there is a a need here for a uh, a low tier pledge upgrade that people can can pick up and think that you know is a nice addition to what they're they're already getting in terms of what you've put on here. I'm quite happy to write a book. How about it? Great, says Julian. Let's do it. So within the space of an hour, that was a, a ten dollar upgrade on the on the Kickstarter pledge, and um, I appear to have another project to do, which um, which would be great. And I'm I'm delighted. One of the things that's in the forward of um, Elite Labor Revolution is um, I mentioned the games that were formative to my um, my childhood, and um, the sequel to, to Chaos, Lords of Chaos, is on that list. So um, yeah, I've always loved those games. And now I get to write a story in that um, that world, which is is amazing. That's fantastic, mate. When can we expect to be able to read it? Well, the game releases in May, um, May of next year. You know, not May of this year, because that would be horrendous. Um, so the game releases May 2015. Ideally, I'd want to be, you know, accompanying the game release. And judging by the times that stuff has taken this year, I don't think that'll be too much of a problem. Um, I've got a Wissamir book to do. By October, there is a proposed sequel to Elite Live Revolution, which uh, I mentioned in the writer's interview with Drew. That will depend on Frontier. So um, uh, fans, when you are reading the book and are lobbying outside of Frontier's offices for Escape Velocity to be legitimized, (laughs) please also lobby them to see if they can... uh, Offer me a second writer's contract. Thank you very much. But yeah, no, I, I, you know, I fully anticipate that um, the uh, the chaos project will um, will basically be, you know, my my priority through uh, through the next year uh, in terms of what's going on. So it'll give me, you know, I've got Wismir to do, and I'll do that alongside it. What else have you been up to? What else have I done? Well, I interviewed Marcus Gibbs, who is the editor from Galance, and um, as people who've been listening have probably worked out, I had the the inside track on who the Galance authors were a couple of weeks before the announcement was made uh, about um, about which you know who was writing which book and what the book titles were and everything else. So the Lave Radio team have had to sit on that a little bit, and now we're uh, working through interviewing those authors themselves. So Chris obviously has done um, Gideon, and uh, next up I think is either John with the duo Gavin Dias. And uh, then Foz, I believe you've got Simon Spurrier. So um, so that will get done. And then the other night, um, I did a short interview with... 
Ben Cordell from the Stick Twiddlers website, the General Games Review website, and um, we're going to have that coming up later, so we'll talk about that later on in the cast. Perfect. Okay, well, let's move on to a little bit of the Elite Dangerous news that's happened this week, and I think it's fair to say that the most important news or the most interesting news that have come out of uh, the Elite Universe stable this week has been the inclusion of the beta backers into the playable universe. Yeah, that's right, the Elite backers who pledge for beta access, for premier beta access, were given access to the single-player campaign on the 10th of April. So it's been quite nice actually uh, seeing some of the the sort of the jaw-dropping wow and comments of, you know, this is fantastic and doesn't it play well. The same thing that we sort of did a few months back when we first got access to it. It's just nice to be able to share the... Uh, share the uh, excitement of the single-player campaigns all over again. Yeah, it's great to see the beta backers join in, and it's really nice to you know for them to experience some of the things that uh, that other people have got. And it's nice as well to see that you know on the forums you're seeing quite a lot of uh, alpha players giving advice, tips, and tricks uh, in terms of setups and uh, and sort of generally giving them uh, uh, sort of ideas on how they can can best optimize their controls. It's really interesting to see how people are getting stuck on particular missions. And, uh, and, you know, having some of the same comments filter through the forums. Because, of course, you know, you forget that some of those comments like, how on earth do you get past incursion? And, <laughs> you know, how many levels is this? Is it endless? Oh, I can't do it. You know, and, and this is too hard. You see, you remember that kind of thing coming through the alpha, and now it's actually it's per- percolating out to the private backers forum and uh, some of the other forums. So it is quite interesting to see that happen again. And, of course, the ultimate answer you know that everybody kind of comes back with is stick with it because yeah. you know other people have managed to you know to get it and actually it kind of bears fruit in terms of the way in which we see our own piloting expertise because you know this is a hard skill game the idea is that this is a hard skill game not a soft skill game not a game that's overly automated um it's a game that you know is, is based on hard skills you kind of need you know, it has a very old school context in that regard because, you know, there are quite a lot of games that you can obviously you can go out, you can play it and it's quite hard for about 20 minutes. And then after that, you get used to it and it picks up. Whereas this, this takes some time and it takes some time to get good and it's quite challenging. And I think that, you know, that that basically gives it longevity. You know, I'm seeing quite a lot of the certainly a few of the comments of, uh, of beta backers getting involved. That's that takes some time to get used to. And I think a lot of the alpha guys are now used to it. You know, there'll be a few beta beta players that, you know, their game experience doesn't really have that kind of, yeah, actually it's going to take you a while to get through these missions. Yeah, and I think there's there's also there's an element that uh, we as alpha backers uh, have kind of forgotten that they're not actually playing the same uh, experience as we did when we first got access to the single-player campaign. Because, of course, the single-player campaign has been going along with the builds, the same as you know, the multiplayer alpha. So every time there's been a balancing issue done or a different weapon included or you know, a, a tweak on the weapon systems or the AI of uh, you know, your NPCs, that's drifted down into the uh, the single-player component as well. So actually, the build that they're playing as uh, you know the first beta launch is not the same as the one that we first played way back when. Maybe we should just cover exactly what uh, has been released about the Alpha 4. Uh, we now know that we're going to be covering a area, I think it's, it's 200 uh, cubic light years. So we don't know how many planets or systems that's going to include, but we do know that it's going to open up uh, both Super Cruise and Hyperspace. So we'll start playing around with the uh, topic for the DDF, which is fuel. 
And of course, you'll be able to go to hopefully a few different stations to be able to trade your goods as well. So any guesses, anybody on the call as to how many uh, systems are going to be in a 200 light year cubic area? You're not asking us to do maths, are you? No, I wouldn't dream of asking you to do maths. Not at all. But there has been. I think some... you're referring to the fact that some some alpha people have um, been trying to calculate it. They've been going through frontier first encounters, um, but I can't remember the numbers that they were coming up with. I mean, I would say if it's just normal space, maybe twenty to thirty systems. Yeah, I mean, we've seen all sorts of uh, hypotheses on the on the forum. Some people have had a look at the frontier star map some people had a look at the first encounters ones and tried to extrapolate from them uh, but of course they were flat and the new universe is very much three-dimensional so nobody really has any ideas and people have been suggesting anything from four uh, systems all the way up to you know a hundred systems so again it's probably going to be one of those nice reveals that we get when it actually drops the other thing about the alpha that's just been announced is the fact that as a thank you to all the alpha backers out there Frontier Developments have said that we will get, as alpha backers, we will get half price or discounted uh, insurance on all of our ships. Lifelong half price insurance. This seemed to cause a little bit of, well, a little bit of angst within the community because some people thought this was a, an unfair advantage to the alpha backers going forward. It was almost a you know, falling back into the old pay to win argument. What's your thoughts on this, guys? I don't, I, I don't really understand the decision really i mean it's you're always going to get this you know by announcing that kind of thing you know it wasn't the original kickstarter i don't think anybody from the alpha was you know expecting it um we don't feel particularly hard done by that we feel that they need to kind of make it up to us or something like that so it is a bit of a weird decision because the only thing that seemed to you know you could predict was that people you know beta backers were going to get upset by it obviously i'll take it (laughs) <laughs> thanks very much <laughs> but um yeah i i i don't really understand it I, I, you almost um, don't though do you i mean if you get a, if you make a certain amount of achievement in elite dangerous you almost don't want to feel that you've kind of shortcutted it do you know what i mean it almost feels a bit like you've you've been denied a certain amount of the journey from newbie ship to massive ship if you're kind yeah. of shortcutting a, an element of the process i mean it's not it's not a massive process. It doesn't make you any more powerful than the other players. Um, it just makes your progress through the game maybe a bit quicker. Well, you say that, but actually it does. If you think about the various starting positions that we paid for, you know, we're not starting in a Sidewinder if we don't want to. We can start in a Cobra Mark III and we can choose our system. So there is an element of you know, taking a shortcut from the newbie ship already. Alan? Yeah, I, I, it, it's just strange. No one asked for it, so it is a little bit of an odd one. And it's not really anything that anybody would have kind of gone, oh, yeah, that'd be nice. You know, it's it's a bit of a weird one. Don't think it matters too much. I'm not too bothered about it in the long run. I mean, then again, you know, when you, when you shorten economic models, it's never usually a good idea, particularly, you know, you want cyclical economic models when you when you devise things because you want things that people can earn money and you want things where people can spend money and ultimately if you can give them uh, as much to spend money on as they earn money on then you end up with a you know a good cyclical model and everything works if you bypass or shortcut that cyclical model in any way then um, what you do is you threaten that you know that ability and so ultimately you end up with you know with people with lots of money with nothing to spend it on um, who then become bored and don't play your game so kind of a tricky one to balance um i don't know how much thought went into it so you know i mean i guess they've they've sort of modeled that um perhaps you know perhaps it's okay 
Well, hopefully, but I mean, without being too cynical, um, do you think that this has been a a marketing tool to try and encourage more people to either upgrade into the alpha or maybe even just join the alpha that haven't previously backed from the Kickstarter? Well, we've we've kind of got, you know, you touched a little bit on pay to win and we've got a little bit of that coming up later in the cast in terms of discussing that topic. I think Michael has said quite clearly that the reason that alpha was offered as a um, as a purchase on its own was because pe- people asked for it. And there's actually there's a current discussion in the community forum at the moment to open up planetary naming and station naming back to the community again because it's a commodity that doesn't really affect anyone's uh, you know anyone's gameplay or, or any sort of delay and release, um, or at least as far as people see it, it doesn't affect you know delay and release. But what it does do is allows people to you know um, contribute something to you know the the ongoing development of Elite Dangerous. Now you know as that goes. If people ask for it you know, and are prepared to pay for something, then, well, that, that's kind of how a disposable economy works. You know, when you, when you have disposable income and you spend it on things that you like, it's kind of what you do. I think one of the things that's dangerous about opening stuff up that was part of a Kickstarter reward, if, if you're trying to get a Kickstarter across the line, you're offering things that you want people to snap up. And one of the ways you do that is through exclusivity. So one of the things Dan was quite clear about during the the, the, the Fantastic Elite books, um, the, the audio Kickstarter, was saying that the special editions that were being offered during the Kickstarter were just as Kickstarter rewards. You know, once once this is done, you know, he made a commitment that you're not going to be able to buy those special editions, that they're not going to become everyday commodities. This is a specific thing to thank backers for pushing the Kickstarter across the line. And I think there's a slightly dangerous area. If you then start saying, well, we did this Kickstarter and we offered these rewards, and now the Kickstarter's done, we're now going to offer those same rewards as kind of commodities. There is a danger that you will impact other Kickstarters or later Kickstarters with people looking at it and saying, well, I could back at this level, but I might as well just wait and see if the Kickstarter's successful and then then buy it later down the line. You know, that's not what you... That's not what you want Kickstarter to give to you. You want the Kickstarter process to be, you know, these are, you have to get people on board by offering them things during that limited window, which they can only get by jumping on board. And I think if you, if you undermine that, I think it's just, it's just a dangerous, it's a dangerous process, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree with that point. And also, if you think about those particular pledge levels, yeah, they weren't cheap. Uh, so what would you do? Would you offer them back to the community at the same price as they were on the Kickstarter? Or would you then say, you know, let's let, you know, drop the price slightly and make it a little bit more accessible for people, therefore potentially cheapening uh, people's contribution during the Kickstarter? Well, I mean, there's there's two sides to it. I mean, as as Chris has just said, the, the existing Kickstarter people might feel hard done by. Ultimately, I don't think they were promised exclusivity. I mean, that might be besides the point, you know, people might have just assumed it and maybe it isn't a fair assumption, I don't know. But the thing is that there was such a clamour for, you know, for them to reopen Alpha Access. Because if you, if you remember, I mean, they got over the line and, and, and they hit um, a stretch goal. But there was still not a lot of, you know, there wasn't a massive public awareness about it. And so it seemed a bit unfair that people who, you know, who were out in the wilderness and didn't know that the project was about and they only found out after it got funded, you know, for them to get involved. And there was a, a you know, a call for it. Uh, and Frontier being a business, what kind of a business is going to turn down the cash? Because 
ultimately, just because they reach the you know reach their goal in the Kickstarter, it doesn't mean that they that they won't find a useful for more money or they can't improve the game if they do make more money. I'm quite pragmatic about it. You know, if Frontier did open it all up, like for instance the naming of planets and things like that, you know, I wouldn't have a problem with that because I'm just trying to make it. You know, I just want it to be the best game. You know that that they can make it, and if if more money helps with that, then then great. Um, and that's probably been the attitude behind um, Star Citizen, or it's certainly the way that people have rationalised the way that they've been funding the game. Is it a different community? I don't know. Star Citizen's an interesting one because at the moment, I mean, there's some interesting stuff coming out of there. But in terms of quality, I think it's been a little bit questionable as to whether or not they've got the quality in game that the money suggests they should have. Um, could it just be a question of, yeah, you know, or could it just be a situation where just because you've got all that money doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a, a quality game? I mean, can't really judge it too harshly because Star Citizen yet again is, is miles away from you know, completion yet, so everything's still very much in the development stage. But I mean, we'll probably come back onto a lot of these points when we talk about the um, uh, the perception of Frontier and the whole uh, pay to test element that seems to be going on at the moment we go into the community section so yeah maybe we park this one for the time being and move on to the ddf there's two topics for the ddf this week one is the revised uh, proposal for wingmen and the other one is fuel uh starting off on the wingmen uh, they've made two revisions to it one is that of ai commands and uh, one of the things we talked about when we were discussing this last time is games like wing commander and free space they all had the ability to give sort of basic commands to uh, to your wingmen and Frontier Developments have suggested that they add in hold fire, fire at will, wait, follow, and end contract. So nothing particularly complex, but I do think it will add just an extra level of immersion with your wingmen and being able to control them a little bit better. The other one, of course, is that of wingmen betrayal. We touched on it when we were talking about the DDF uh, topic, but uh, they've taken it one step further and just sort of giving us some insight as to what sort of things will actually affect the uh, the chance of your wingman actually betraying you in-game. Uh, there's various things such as uh, the base chance. So in other words, if they've got a high criminality, they're 50% more likely to, uh, to betray you than if they actually have a low criminality. That makes sense if they're a bad guy. NPC reputation. So in other words, your reputation with them. Uh, faction reputation. Cargo value. This is quite a nice one. So the higher the value of your cargo, the higher the likelihood that they will betray you. The comparative ship power score, so in other words, if they're in a more powerful ship than you, uh, the chance of them betraying you goes up as well. And finally, the location that you're currently in. So there's more chance of them betraying you if you're in anarchy space as opposed to a base with uh, with a high authority level. All makes perfect sense to me. Guys, your thoughts on this? Well, they've just fleshed it out a bit, especially with what you were just talking about there, the kind of percentage modifiers. They've just kind of made it a bit more complete and obviously added in the wingman stuff, which has kind of appeased some people who who didn't like this kind of pure AI approach to it. Um, it wasn't enough that they were going to be intelligent, hopefully. You know, they did want to be able to give commands. So, you know, I think it's 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 a win-win-win. And just looking at the, uh, the end of this, it says the value is then calculated based on all those modifiers and a betrayal role is made. Uh, the value can then be recalculated and re-rolled whenever the situation changes. If a betrayal roll succeeds, the contract ends and the AI will communicate their intent to attack the player, offering them a chance to avoid the fight by either dumping their cargo or paying them off, which I think is quite a nice uh, a nice sort of out as well. Uh, I don't think that was mentioned in the last uh, in the last proposal. So even if they do betray, you have got a, an option 
of getting out without a fight, which I think is quite nice. I think there's a factor that's going to need to be looked into carefully, though, because they have tried to flesh out the the proposal with you know with these numbers. The thing with percentages is okay. I don't want this to become a maths thing. The thing with percentages is even if theoretically all the modifiers suggest that someone should be a complete ally of yours, there is still a percentage chance that they will turn on you. So if you think about that logically, you could have a really high standing with a faction. You could have hired an NPC who, on the scale of NPCs, is like a close personal friend. To you. <laughs> you could be doing a job that's entirely legal, that is very low in value, and your wingman could have a really low value ship. And there is still a percentage chance, however small, that they will turn on you. And I just don't buy that. I just the, There's something about certain use cases in this particular DDF topic that I just think are wrong. Because if you think about it, if you've built up a reputation in a faction and you have someone that is a close, trusted NPC to you, if that NPC does betray you, it should have massive ramifications. It shouldn't just be a thing of, oh, I had this wingman, you know, he turned on me and tried to steal my cargo. No, no, no. You have a relationship with an NPC NPC and they have massively massively betrayed you by turning on you and trying to steal stuff from you and I think I have a horrible feeling that they've they've slightly misunderstood you know underestimated just how significant some of the rules are that they need to factor into this wingman loyalty with regards to you know ongoing NPC relationships and I think I don't know I just think the devil's going to be in the numbers I think they'll need to balance it I mean they've given these numbers as an example I will be very surprised if these are unbalanced, you know, in, in the final version of the game. But I really do think they need to look at some special cases and say, well, actually, you know, in this instance, this person really shouldn't turn on you. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, it could be something that yeah, hopefully turns up in the yeah, initial testing before it's released. I and mean, if we all come in after playing the beta for a couple of months and say, uh, yeah, 90% of my wingmen uh, betrayed me, uh, or even yeah, just any percentage that you would expect, any percentage that's higher than what you would expect should hopefully get picked up and balanced out. Okay, which leads us to our second topic on the DDF. Uh, it's quite a lengthy one, quite a technical one. So I'm going to throw it straight over to John. John, tell us about fuel. Uh, yeah, I mean, fuel is a massively important factor within the game. It's not the sexiest topic, I'll admit, <laughs> but um, I dare say there was a lot of people that wanted to know about how it worked. So I'll just summarise the important parts. The main interesting part is you have a, a main tank and an active fuel reservoir. This kind of mimics what happened in Frontier. I, I, I can't remember from Elite, but I think in, in Frontier you, you had the fuel in your cargo hold, and then what would happen is you could either manage or you could pay for, for a, a, you know, a gizmo that would automatically fill up your actual fuel tank from your from your cargo. But they've changed it slightly now, so there's, a, there's actually a fuel tank which has a capacity which you can fill up at, at, at space stations or whatever. And so you're not going to have that same flexibility that you might have had before where you could just take tons and tons and tons and tons of fuel and fill up your cargo with them. So just quickly, the active fuel reservoir is basically where your ship's going to be drawing from for, for, for power, um, for your drives, whether it be super cruise or just normal operation, they're saying that it should last you a fair while. So, you know, your, your active fuel reservoir, you should get maybe an hour's use out of it if you're use, going at about 75% of top um, speed. So that was the... And, and basically what happens is as that empties, then it'll take another turn or, or whatever size it is from the main the main tank I, I couldn't work out how this was different to how frontier elite 2 worked because to me this sounded like because in frontier you had a sort of a fuel bar that was for flying around 
and then you had hydrogen in your cargo bay that you could refuel from if you were getting low on fuel and it was used directly for the hyperdrive so well it's 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 similar in that you got in effect the active fuel reservoir which is your fuel tank and in fact sometimes when you obviously remember when you traded your ship in it would always remind you that your fuel tank was empty or whatever or if you changed your hyperdrive but the difference is and it's 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 mainly a conceptual one is you have a, a main tank now so it's not a case that you just load tons and tons and tons of fuel in cargo. Instead, you fill a fuel tank up. So in a way, you're limited. You don't have your maximum cargo space. You couldn't fill it up with fuel. It's now a fuel tank. Right. Oh, yeah. No, I see the design distinction. Okay. Yeah. So it's yeah. Yeah. So the the, the fuel that you if you if you buy fuel that is just as a commodity. You can't actually power your ship from it. Yes. Yeah. If you're transporting it in cargo, it's cargo and it won't go into your ship. Um, I dare say that they may have some kind of an add-on to your ship that will allow you to, to do that. I don't know. But um, for the moment, there's an actual a fuel tank, which you, you top up like you would a car, I guess. So they got details on the operation, which you know gives you the finer detail about what happens if, you know, once your active fuel reservoir um, depletes, you know, it will automatically fill it from the main tank. But the interesting thing, obviously, is, you know, where what systems use the fuel from which tanks. So Super Cruise, as I said, uses um, the fuel from your active fuel tank, whereas Hyperspace will use it directly from the main tank. There's a bit of a distinction there of where the fuel's going to disappear from. Refueling is is the kind of interesting bit, I guess. And and again, they go into a lot of detail about, you know, you know, little things, for instance, that, you know, when you fill a tank, you know, it's always handled in whole units. So, for instance, if your active fuel reservoir is like half full and you refuel it, you know, you'll have to still buy a ton even though it's only going to fill it up half a ton. They've, they've mentioned, of course, obviously, you can transfer fuel from other players. And they've kind of hinted at, in a, in a little bit more detail, about how players are going to be able to exchange goods between ships. There's going to be kind of exchange or trade UI panel. I don't think this has been mentioned in, in any detail previously. But by the sounds of it, it's going to be quite similar to what we've seen in role-playing games. When you want to trade with a player, you know, you will both say, you know, agree on what you want to trade. And if money is going to trade hands or whether it's just going to be other goods so that's going to be in there as well there's going to be different types of fuel which have fuel modifiers which in effect will be you know some fuels are more efficient than others and so you'll get a percentage modifier to the rate that the fuel burns but also a modifier on you know how much fuel will be used when you jump with hyperspace and also they kind of expand on the fuel tank malfunctions as part of the existing damage model and the kind of things that can happen so you know you can get minor malfunctions with faulty fuel lines on, on the you know the active fuel reserve but then you can also get major malfunctions where your you know your main tank effectively blows up and just consumes all the fuel on your ship the other thing i suppose is when you're talking about fuel scooping uh, it does say about that quality of fuel that if you scoop any fuel which is a higher quality than what you're currently carrying in your tank basically the quality in your tank will be maintained uh, if you scoop fuel that is of a lower quality then it stands to reason that your actual tank uh, efficiency the, the stuff you've got in your tank goes down they say risking uh, malfunctions and damage to the ship. There was one other thing I noticed, um, and it might come across as a bit of a limitation. And this is talking in in the context of how now you have a fuel tank rather than you have fuel in in canisters in, in your cargo hold. When you use a fuel scoop, it fills your main tank. 
And so when your main tank is full, you can't scoop any more. Um, and that's certainly what I read from this. So I don't see in that mechanism where it's possible to scoop additional fuel and put it into canisters to be traded. Yeah. Does that mean you're going to need a different type of scoop to do that? Uh, I think we need to kind of ask for clarification on, on the thread. Uh, so this is the, re- this is the newer of the uh, DDF proposals. So I dare say that somebody will be asking about that. Yeah, no, I, I think, I mean, that's that's pretty important. And obviously there have been some concern about the connection to this and the announced Explorer classes of vehicle because people are a little bit worried about whether that means that you can attach a fuel scoop to any ship or whether that means you can attach a fuel scoop just to certain types of ship. There's a little bit of concern in the writing forum in relation to this because, of course, most of the, the novels are approved and have gone through their process and then to announce if and you know and they they kind of didn't say it specifically but you know we know that there there has to be a distinction between an explorer class and a, a normal class as it were but the you know with the possibility that um the amazing generally amazing and I will make the point here Mike Evans who I think he's amazing. Other than this point that he made, the point about whether certain types of ship can actually have fuel scoops. And, um, you know, there is a worry there if you've already written a story where that type of ship has got a fuel scoop and then it turns out in-game it can't have a fuel scoop. You know, how that sort of affects continuity as things go. Now, thankfully, Mike clarified a little bit later and said, um, yeah, no, it's okay. We haven't actually made the decisions yet, which was fine. So, you know, and I'm sure they'll think about it. But does a fuel scoop constitute long-range or explorer-type vessels is that what it means and if so you know that kind of relates to john's point doesn't it in relation to you know how you can store fuel and and uh, there was one other part that we haven't got to yet that that i kind of skimmed over but um and you mentioned it there alan this idea of different classes of ships uh and they do allude to the fact that explorer type ships have a different type of armor which will have a modifier which basically increases the efficiency of the fuel so in other words you could travel further on the same amount of fuel whereas if you've got like a battleship you're going to have heavy armor which is going to have a negative modifier and reduces the range of your ship so there is already a kind of distinction between different ships and their different functions but there was an argument to say that they were trying to make the explorer class career unique and distinct and they um, one of the arguments that came back was if you can put a fuel scoop on a say a cobra what's to stop you just going off and being an explorer in a cobra and they were saying you know we're looking for ways to make the explorer class an interesting thing and the thing that occurred to me was you know this was exactly the same problem we had with the passenger liners where they said in order to make passenger liners an interesting experience we need to stop other ships having passenger cabins and people kind of said no 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 we still want our passenger cabins on other ships that aren't passenger liners And they were sort of like, oh, you know, but we want to make the passenger liner special. And the argument was, you don't make one type of ship special by removing gameplay choice from other areas of the game. And actually, it's kind of come back here where they said, oh, well, we want to make the Explorer class a thing. And in order to do it, we're going to take away your ability to choose to have a fuel scoop in a craft that you're not going to use for exploring. You know, there are plenty of instances where you might need a fuel scoop. You know, if if you've got a bad reputation in a system, if you're a criminal... You can't dock at a station, so you can't refuel. So, you know, there's, there's going to be plenty of instances where you would need a fuel scoop, even in a heavily populated area. There were, in some of the previous games, there were some of the categories of ship could not have a fuel scoop fitted to them. 
So um, there are some ships that you know, that, that actively couldn't have a fuel scoop. I know what you mean, Chris, about, you know, people still want to be able to dabble. I, I still don't think there's any agreement on the fuel scoop thing, as Alan said. But from this proposal, they're kind of doing what they, they did with the passenger cabins. They relented and they've said that, OK, all ships can do this, but some ships are more efficient at it. And that's why they've gone down this, this avenue of you get special kind of plating or armor or hulls for the explorers, which gives them extra efficiency and makes them more suitable to long range than other ships. I mean, isn't the whole point about the uh, the elite ships is that you can pretty much pick any ship and do any class. You shouldn't be excluded from any class. It's just that some are more tailored to those particular uh, careers than others. Well, that's how I'd like to see it, yeah. And that's the way I think that they want to do it now after, you know, after the DDF you know, said their piece. Okay, well, let's leave that there and just quickly flick over the uh, the peak of the week. So I didn't realise we were so far behind on these ones. I think the last time we had a show, we talked about the, the design of the Eagle Fighter that was displayed on uh, one of the developers' screens. And since then, we've had uh, a plasma gun <laughs> shown very nicely with, uh, with a human uh, standing next to it for scale. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that considering the gun is around about twice the size in terms of height as the human and much, much larger, I think this is our first glimpse of maybe an anaconda or even a capital ship weapon, Alan? Yeah, no, it's interesting to see the scale, certainly. I mean, that's, um, you know, that's a given. You know, it's also it's nice to see people doing some work and um, having <laughs> some broken pieces of um, of what looks like cardboard cutouts of ships on their desktop, um, which is always very nice. Um, and a, a little mouse with very big ears. So blessed. But yeah, no, I mean, different different science fiction designers, different science fiction environments have always had different interpretations of what, uh, what different weapons look like. Plasma's a, a weird term. You know, it is kind of you know when 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 we talk about sort of plasma weapons and what have you it often comes up to to sort of different interpretations of how that works and how that how the chemical element of that is i really don't know anything when it comes to chemistry so i'm probably not the best person to talk to from a technical point of view when when people talk about plasma weapons i mean there is still a kind of you know it is a particle based weapon and so if you remember back in frontier the plasma weapons were just basically souped up lasers they behaved like beam lasers or or pulse lasers or whatever whereas when i think of what a plasma weapon would be like it'd be more like um, the weapons we see in star citizen where you're firing bolts of energy so i'll be interested i mean the gun looks great but i'll be interested in how it actually works and what it actually fires so i mean if it does fire balls of very destructive plasma that's cool because they're kind of making it a bit more you know, um, in line with current science, I guess. Uh, yeah, I've always considered plasma a sort of superheated napalm, isn't it? Isn't plasma a chemical substance that burns at sort of thousands of degrees? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's less about the chemical and about the temperature of the chemical because potentially any, you know, any element could be... It, it's about heating it to such a temperature that it behaves in a, in a different way. It's, it, um, it's above the gas state. And I think uh, I'm sure a lot more people know a lot more about it than we do. But we think it's a plasma gun anyway. Alan, what about the, I mean, this is probably more of a fiction question for both you and Chris, but in terms of the background and stuff, how much detail have you guys gone into in terms of the, you know, the way these weapons actually work? I mean, 
Have you been told that one is just a physical weapon, one is a laser, or have you been told about how these things are generated? No, not really at all. Generally speaking, what you do when writing anything, and, and certainly this is for me in, in this case, when writing anything related to a battle scene, you know, I tend to keep it based on what the pilot or what the perspective character is experiencing at the time. So you might go into a little bit of description about, you know, the quality of lasers and the, you know, the, the things that you're seeing. But it's a common um, inexperienced writer's mistake to get far too caught up in the the sort of laser light show and the technicalities of um, of science fiction, if you get too caught up in that, you know, it it just becomes all very very dry and all very boring. So actually, what you know, what's important when you're writing is to relate it to um, the character's feeling in relation to the circumstances and situation that they're in. So all the best science fiction space battle scenes are all about you know the acceleration as you you know you press back into your seat as you dive through and. Um, you know, avoiding the debris and then the flashes of light and the explosions that you managed to bank away from and so on and so forth, that that kind of stuff, rather than, oh, look at the, is that a plasma gun or is that a laser gun? Kind of doesn't matter. I mean, on the flip side of that, there is the Tom Clancy school of writing, which is... <laughs> you know, give, your, give, your, give your readers lots of technical detail about the weapons you know, yeah. on almost every page. Um, I don't think anybody's gone that far. I mean, across the fiction, I would say that the main distinction is probably between energy weapons, Gatling guns and missiles. You know, there's certainly a lot of different things that people discuss. Well, certainly with the missiles, there's, there's quite a few of the stories that go into the whole thing of missiles, which are, you know, Im- immune to ECM and... And, and this sort of thing, because obviously in the writing, they're trying to reproduce that experience of playing the game and having an ECM that doesn't work on a missile and explaining that. But there's not too much of a delve into the science of, of, of the weapons, though. OK, well, maybe we leave that one there then and go on to peak of the week number 26. Uh, now, this is some concept art for, I mean, you'd say it was a cockpit because you can see the two fighter chairs. Um, sorry, the two pilot chairs there bottom of the screen. But uh, as a piece of concept art, I love this one. I love the the atmosphere it's creating. Now, there was a bit of a, a to and a throw as to which ship this was actually depicting. Now, uh, I haven't gone back to the thread to find out if we ever got an answer to this. Do you guys know? Uh, I think there was a feeling that it was maybe one of the Laken freighters or something like that. Um, yeah, certainly it has the industrial look about it, doesn't it? I, I can't remember if they ever actually confirmed it. I think it was definitely either the Laken or the um, uh, the Asp Explorer, but I, th- I think it was veering towards the Laken. Yeah, certainly and with uh, some of the Laken ships as well. They, you can you can almost see that the the cockpit's over sort of like two levels, uh, and this picture certainly seems to depict that there's certainly more than one level uh, within the cockpit. But I mean, looking at this, I mean, seeing how close. Frontier have managed to keep the concept art to the stuff that we're actually seeing in the the game universe. How fantastic is it going to be when we can walk around ships to actually be able to walk around this yeah this setting? Absolutely. The thing that I was occurring to me earlier was when we were talking about the ship to ship trade and how you're going to have this interface where you agree the stuff that you're going to trade between you. And the thing that occurred to me is once you can walk around in your ship, and when you do a ship to ship dock you can walk into the other person's ship. Is it going to be a bit weird to have to do the trading via a kind of computer interface? What, as opposed to in the new, you know, when they release the new version or the upgrade, what, you're going to have to manually carry all the boxes or something? No, 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 I just (laughs) mean for agreeing. I'm just wondering if there may be, I don't know, I'm just wondering if it's just a thing that will be contradicted later or whether actually it'll work fine because you'll you'll both have a tablet on you that you'll make the agreements on, you know, just, it was just something that popped into my head. But I think it's right that they're not being bound in design decisions now 
by things that they might do later down the line. Uh, I think that would be a wrong way to go. It was just it was just something that occurred. Yeah, although I have to say, looking at the picture now, there is a, a slightly disturbing element of this. If you have a look down at the seat, you can see that the seat's actually got one of the uh, one of the flight suits in it, uh, which is headless at the moment, uh, which looks a bit spooky, to be honest. Well, that's for the Rift users, presumably. No, but seemingly so. <laughs> okay, and the final peak of the week. This brings us right up to date. It's uh, peak of the week, week 27, and this is the uh, the interior of the, the Eagle. So coming full circle to where we left off, uh, it shows you a, a cross-section of the Eagle fighter. Again, it looks really, really nice. And you can imagine how, when they do actually get to walking around in ships, how this is going to be a really good locale to actually sort of walk around and the, uh, the level of detail that they're putting into all these cops is phenomenal it's longer than i thought it was going to be well i think there's an interesting comparison in the style of the art between if you if you look between week 26 and week 27 week 26 is a very traditional concept type drawing one of the things that interests me about this one is you can see on this this particular drawing for the eagle cockpit that there are actually sort of lines of the 3d model of the ship so this is obviously something that's been drawn in context with the geography of the actual 3d model they've got uh, the only thing I was going to say is, again, uh, I, it was announced that uh, the, the, this eagle is, again, it's a Federation ship now rather than an Imperial one, which really surprised me considering they got an ice dispenser in there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, only the Imperials would need an ice dispenser, surely. Well, Alan, for maybe for some of the listeners that came on uh, a little bit later than when we discussed this, maybe you can give us a, a brief history of the eagle. The original Eagle was a licensed design that was available to both Federation and Imperial navies. You know, it was pretty robust and uh, and quite useful and, and particularly economical. The Federation then went off to build an Eagle Mark II, and there were some really bad design flaws, particularly in the thrust capacity. Um, and so the Empire actually then brought into production a revised version, which was the Eagle Mark III, um, and got that out. A little bit quicker um, and kind of you know it was almost like a v sign to the to the federation in terms of the way in which they've managed to to you know perfect their design for them as it were what um what frontier are doing with um elite dangerous and the eagle fighter at this stage is it going back to the federation or anything else we don't really know so um you know we're kind of um up in the air uh, the original design notes did suggest that the eagle mark one was still better than the revised designs by either faction so could be they've gone back to the original and that um you know they've improved on that uh, i'm sure frontier developments must be including that history somewhere when you buy your new eagle mark are we calling it the mark four or are we just calling it the eagle well i think we should call it the mark four because that's okay what it fine. Is. we'll call it the mark four right fine um, but when you buy your brand new mark four it'd be nice to have a history of the uh, the ship that you're buying presented to you in some way in game yeah no i mean that that would be interesting certainly for for all of the you know the ship types i mean there's quite a lot of mark design things that have gone on through the process and we're kind of hoping you know later on down the line when they're ready that frontier will go through and uh, and give a bit of a lineage to the different types of ship that um that we're expecting to see i think the interesting thing with the eagle is that it's a fairly ubiquitous fighter because you know the federation's already got this um little thing called the condor and um the empire have already got uh, a, you know a different type of fighter so you know the eagle has usually been the the sort of the middle ground as it were you know one of those those sort of all comers that um you know occasionally is used by independents and other uh, other organizations so more of a licensed craft so it'd be interesting to see how you know how it fits into the game universe and where they elect to um to deploy it 
So before we move on, just uh, wondering if any of you guys actually in the last week played Alpha 3.4. Well, I think I said it in the last cast that uh, I've been pretty frustrated, you know, by some bugs. They seem to be manifesting particularly badly on my setup. So I've had a bit of a break and that's probably what's allowed me to enjoy so much of, you know, the chaos stuff. But uh, I am absolutely desperate to get my hands on uh, Alpha 4 because, you know, the the travel and trading probably interests me a lot more than you know, loading out my ship and, and going and battling somewhere. Yeah, I've I've had similar experiences with the Alpha. I mean, I have sort of popped in and out of it and tried to make some progress, but really the stability issues that you know that we're still seeing with the Alpha are really just preventing any kind of progress. I think it'll be quite. I'll be quite amused. We've got a community question, I think, about you know our favourite loadout for the Cobra in the Alpha, and it'll be interesting when we get to that discussion. How many of us have actually got far enough to be able to give an informed opinion on that? Well, for me, the the purpose of of playing the Alpha, you know, I mean, it was exciting uh, in its you know its its starting point, but uh, the main purpose of playing the Alpha was to kind of get informed for the uh, the ship combat scenes that I was writing. And um, what I did last week is I did a very very final pass over Elite Labor Evolution and just to to tweak it and tidy up some of the scenes so that they are in line with uh, with the Alpha and in line with station docking and in line with you know with with sort of combat scenes and how uh lasers are available on the cobra so you've got four weapons as opposed to two and so on and so forth so you know that was all information that that i kind of needed but uh, beyond that uh, i haven't really had time to be perfectly honest new for me this week i probably should have mentioned it in uh, what i've been up to this week i've actually received or i've actually uh, had installed some uh, some actual broadband as opposed to the narrow band that I've been working with for a few years. Uh, I should mention that I live out in the countryside and there's no way that BT were ever going to install fibre to uh, to our village because there's less than 200 of us living here. So we've actually just managed to get a bizarre sort of broadband which is beamed by uh, um, dishes uh, from the nearest village that does have fibre and then uh, connected to uh, wireless routers that are connected on to the side of people's houses. And it's given me around about 15 megabytes uh, worth of download. And I've been trying to play the alpha just to see the difference in having you know, a bad internet connection to having a, you know, a stable and fast internet connection. And I have to say, in terms of the spinning sidewinder and everything else, it, everything works much, much faster, much, much better, as you would expect. But unlike John and Chris, I have to say that the whole alpha experience for me now has just become so stable. Uh, apart from the, the the regular stuff, um, the impeccable defense where you have to defend the uh, you know, the big Federation capital ship, uh, we still have the problem with that. Instead of being one capital ship, there's four of them and they're all glitching badly. So it looks like they're humping each other up the exhaust pipe, which I like to call it the, the capital ship Hydra. <laughs> It is. It's glitchy like mad, and and that still is the same. But in terms of the frame rate issues I was having when I had uh, slower broadband, that's all gone. In terms of the crashing to desktop, that's been really sort of uh, sort of knocked on the head as well. So I've actually been getting around about an hour, an hour and a half between crashes to desktop in the game. So I've managed to get myself up to a Cobra Mark III. I managed to try a few different loadouts on that, which we'll talk about in Community Corner, uh, and really just enjoying the um, enjoying the alpha. Uh, as a as a gaming experience. Now, the flip side of that is because I'm not crashing to desktop every five or ten minutes, I've actually managed to play my fill of the alpha at the moment. So, like John, I'm really waiting for you know, Alpha Four to drop to give me a little bit of new content to uh, to go and explore. But yeah, at the moment, everything is pretty stable for me. Okay, and for Community Corner this week, we've got a discussion topic. There's been quite a lot in the social media and the forums at the moment around the Frontier Development Pay 
uh, pay to test model and how Frontier are sort of marketing the, the testing of the Elite Dangerous Alpha is something that you can sort of buy into. Some people have perceived this from outside the community as quite a um, quite an expensive way of getting into the game. Alan, I think you've been doing some digging around the topic. What's been going on? Well, yeah, the situation essentially is that um, we had a, a small uh, review coverage uh, article in one of the episodes of um, Stick Chat on uh, the game review site Stick Twiddlers, who are a fairly small independent game reviewer, and um, they were picking up the price of the alpha and uh, and the beta as they are in the Elite Dangerous store. So with the fact that um, there were some fairly controversial comments made uh, by them about um, members of the Elite Dangerous community who had elected to buy these, um, these sort of early access tokens, what I did is got involved in uh, the discussion afterwards about their program and then invited them to have a one-to-one interview with me. And um, so I got Ben Cordell, who was the researcher who went and looked up a little bit about Elite Dangerous and I tracked him down and we had a bit of a Skype chat to find out a bit more about their view. Greetings, Lave Radio listeners. This is a short discussion where I'm joined by the Stick Twiddlers podcast presenter uh, or co-presenter, Ben Cordell. Now, um, for those of you that haven't been following the, the Frontier Forums or the Stick Twiddlers chat area, there was a little bit of a, a controversy last week, sort of late last week or the week before it, it may be now that uh, you're listening to this, where Stick Twiddlers released an episode uh, where they were looking at uh, a couple of games and one of the games that featured was Elite Dangerous. And this brought up a, a particular opinion and a particular um, attitude towards some of the, the elements to do with crowdsource funding and also to do with paying for, for betas and alphas in relation to, to, to funding games. Now, aside from some of the matters that, uh, that came up in terms of your piece, Ben, which let's, let's leave those aside for, for the moment, I think the, the key thing we want to boil down to is this, this opinion. I th- I'm very interested in uh, the opinion that was voiced in relation to the pay-for-access issue. Mm-hmm. And I know you guys were quite forthright in relation to this. So I'm quite interested in your, your take on it. And then uh, I'd, I'd quite like to discuss it with you, and we can obviously sort of then uh, then take it back. Um, so so what is the issue there in terms of, uh, of how you see this? Primarily, we've always had an issue with developers and publishers putting forward a model where they ask fans or gamers or backers or, or whatever they they could be under um, to pay for alpha and beta access to a game or really kind of any what we would consider a core development process um, of a game. Um, and that's, that's ultimately what it boils down to. Okay. Um, why? Primarily, it's, it's pretty much that. It's because it is a, a core part of, of a game's development. And, you know, we understand as well that, that fan input especially for a kickstarted title can be incredibly beneficial but i don't feel that asking fans to pay that to pay to in order to give that feedback and and wrap it up in a way of oh this is a reward for you um is necessarily beneficial to either party when it comes down to to testing in particular um obviously having it at different levels throughout development is is obviously something that's quite useful um so when you're initially starting you're obviously probably going to want a small group in there um, in order to kind of identify any initial testing, 
um, and then move it on to a larger audience and then another one from there. One of the problems with paying for, for alpha, beta access and, and so on and so forth is that it could potentially, although I highly doubt it, that they'll just sit and twiddle their thumbs, cause certain or, or at least potential hinders to that development process. Obviously, you know, if, you've, if you're opening up an alpha, you've got, let's say, 500 people in that alpha um, and you set uh, your times and your dates for those to happen. You could gather all that data that you need within that period of time and then find yourself for the next two weeks or so having to wait to open up the next stage of testing in order to let in the next bunch of testers who have paid for it and you can't move it up because they've paid for that access. I can't quite understand that, to be honest. Could you kind of clarify that for me? I, I'm, I'm just trying to, to understand the whole of your point. So you said that um, essentially that um, you're worried that, you know, that alpha testing by this method could hinder the alpha process. Mm -hmm. um, I don't quite see how it would hinder the alpha process. Why would you wait? What possible? I, I don't understand well, well, that. Well, this is the thing, as, you know, as I'm saying, you're, you're paying in for a certain part. So we know that you know, yeah. in, the, in the particular case of um, Elite, you've got an alpha, a beta, a um, well, a premium beta, and then there's a follow-up beta, as far as I'm aware, a uh -huh. second one. Yeah. So, you know, for example, if you say, right, okay, we're going to do all of our alpha testing between January and February, and in February yeah. we're going to open it up to the next set of, of you know, yeah. the initial beta. We're going to run that from February to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you gather enough of that data in that in that period of time that you feel like you it's you know that you need or you turn around like right well we've got all this now but we can't really find out the additional stuff that we need until we get more mm. people in because you've made a promise to those backers and because they've paid to get that access at a particular time it's harder to release that and push that up without actually I, th I think it's probably a little bit the other way around but I, I I do certainly see your point in that currently the the elite dangerous testing process um it's been fairly locked down in terms of when the alpha was going to be you know, sort of sent out and when um, when the alpha, the, you know, how many alpha stages and so on and so forth. But actually there has been a little bit of delay on the, the beta access. Mm -hmm. So particularly when you have individuals who are who have paid for that access, then I guess when they are delayed in terms of, you know, the alpha has thrown up additional issues, then obviously they, they feel, even if it's an estimated time, they feel that uh, that obviously that there is a little bit of but I have paid, Absolutely. as it were, you know. So I, I kind of see what you're saying. It's sort of the almost the opposite in terms of the delay. Do you see what I mean? Um, it's actually the delay is informed by the testing. In yeah, relation to, I mean, to what's there. It, you know, it can go both ways. So either they they get mm. the data that they need at an earlier stage, and they're in the problem yeah. where they want to invite people in at an earlier point, and then you mm. get. You know, alpha testers will break it up into alpha, premium, beta, and beta just for the sake of this. It makes yeah, much sure, easier. Sure. So alpha comes in, they finish two weeks early, they go, right, we're going to bring in the premium beta testers. And the alpha go, well, hold on a second, we've paid 200 pounds to have, to have access right. to this game for a month just yeah. for alpha testers. How come they've paid considerably less than us and they're getting in early and they're having more time with that? And then again, it could be a similar, you know, they get the beta in, alpha and beta in. Yeah. The development, you know, as you said, mm -hmm. take a bit yeah. longer. So then you've got... I secondary beta exactly the same I, issue why is it taking why is our time now being cut down because this period's taking longer it's the problem when you when you get money when you get you know money like that involved you expect a product you expect a service and if it's not if you're not given that then obviously there's a certain level of entitlement there and it's you know it's completely understandable if you pay for a service and you pay for you know something that you expect at a, a, a certain time and you don't get it 
then, you know, you've got every right to be a bit miffed. Yeah, no, I, I understand you a little bit better now. So actually what we're talking about is a, in that argument, we're talking about the time either either way. Mm-hmm. So essentially you're talking through the um, whether something's delayed or whether something is brought forward and, you know, and how much exclusivity is, uh, is sort of is generated in relation to what's there. No, I can I can certainly see that. And um, certainly, you know, there is there is a occasional level of tension in relation to, you know, to, to sort of timings as to when things are going to come out. Often that can, you know, that can come down in relation to if people communicate clearly, that can can certainly assist in relation to that. But, um, you know, in in all circumstances, you do do get some of those situations and what happens. Just to to draw it slightly differently, then, Mm -hmm. in terms of if people are paying for that kind of access, Mm -hmm. then why are they a problem? That 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 to me is 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 part of the the argument that you've given. Certainly, it was was in the the, the episode, yep. and we'll we, you know we'll cast the other bits and pieces. Why are people are paying for that access creating a problem in themselves? Because it's validating this as an acceptable business practice, right. which we don't agree with. We don't we don't mm-hmm. feel that people should be paying for for alpha, beta, or any kind of early access. We don't feel it's we don't feel that it's beneficial for you know for. One of the reasons that we've discussed just just a minute mm-hmm. ago, that's yeah, that's primarily where it comes down to, you know, a, a lot of pretty much a lot of things in life typically come down to voting with your wallet um, and, you know, DLC and microtransactions, um, you know, are both incredibly big hot topic discussions in terms of more current generation gaming. Um, you know, there are a lot of games. Why, you know, why are people cutting content? Why are they charging microtransactions? And the answer always comes down to, well, you're paying for it. As long as you keep paying for it and as long as it's still a profitable action, a profitable business model, then publishers and developers are going to keep doing it because it makes it makes them money. So how is that different to any other way in which people pay disposable income for something? In what way? Cause, sorry, could you give an example? Uh, yeah, well, if I, if I buy something with disposable income, income that I have that, um, that I, I, I purchase something I want, mm-hmm. anything that I want, a book, a toy, you know, anything at all, it, it's, it's my use of disposable income. Mm-hmm, so, and similarly, the economic model for a for profitable business is always and you know much as we can we can kind of dress some of these things up in relation to the way in which you know some businesses have noble practices they have you know methods by which they they look at charity endorsement or anything else but ultimately a business is designed to make a profit mm-hmm. how is this pricing model and the the choice of an individual to spend their disposable income in a particular way how is that different in this case how how anybody wants to spend their disposable income that they have earned is completely up to them like we we don't have a problem with people spending money however they want to we mm-hmm. have a problem with people at the same time as we think that it's a stupid way to spend your disposable income we don't think mm-hmm. it's right for people to tell us that we're stupid because we think it's stupid like it's it's an opinion at the end of the day <laughs> and it, it goes both ways sure yeah but it's an opinion on a published medium you know i mean we can we can sort of go into the the detail of that um in more detail, but the you know the the fundamental issue is that you know you have a right to you know you have a right to criticise people who who make a decision about what they choose to do. But I, I'm trying I'm I'm not trying really to get into that specific. What I'm more interested in is how is this different in that you know people have have made this choice and have made this spend. How is it different to them making a spend on something else? Um, how is it different to a different business model? Because you've said that you've got an issue with this this exclusivity of access, and that um, that you feel that this is part of should be part of a development process. But this is a, an object that people have 
placed value in. And anything in a, a commodity market that's related to disposable income is something that people assign value to. So how is this different? Well, I suppose when it comes down to it, it's not any different. But at the same time, okay. it doesn't affect the opinion. Of, you know, everyone's going to have an opinion about how other people spend their money. You know, especially we as gamers. You know, non-gamers will look at us and go, why have you just spent 400 quid on the next-gen yeah. console? Why have you just spent, you know, 600 quid on a new PC rig? That's stupid. It's because mm-hmm. it's, it's not, it's, they don't feel like it, that's how they would spend their money. And that's the sure. exact same position that we're in. You guys, obviously, incredibly passionate about Elite Dangerous and want to see it come to fruition. And we totally support that. You know, we're, we're gamers. We all have franchises that we'd love to see. I've discussed mm-hmm. with one of the commenters in the, uh, in the comment section of the article. He was like, you know, how, you know, how would you feel if a franchise came back after 20 years and like, we're going to bring it back? And I said, well, you know, I'm a huge point and click adventure fan. I'm, Big, big fan of LucasArts, rest in peace, Disney, you monsters. And, you know, if, if Ron Gilbert turned around to me and was like, we're going to bring back a new Monkey Island, I would back it, but I wouldn't back it in the sense of, okay, we're going to charge you this much for early access to that game because it's not a model that I agree with. And I think that there are other other assets that and other rewards that could be made available to backers that I felt didn't compromise what I believe it is, is a poor business practice. Okay, let's, let's sort of take that uh, a little bit around because you've touched on there some of the, the matters in relation to how people engage with something that, uh, that means something to mm-hmm. them. Now, obviously, in relation to this, the, we've certainly established through a year and a half now of uh, being involved in uh, the Elite Dangerous community and the other bits and pieces that we do, we've established that there is a very strong community basis and that um, the individuals about um, this community, you know, there is a level of investment in relation to that, not just in, in relation to finance, but there is also a, a level of investment related to, to time and seeing the developments and seeing how things are, are put forward and so on and so forth. So I think I can kind of see, you know, there is, there is a sort of psychology of predisposition in that regard where, you know, if you go to the cinema, it's very seldom that people walk out of the cinema mm-hmm. when they've paid for, for a ticket because they've predisposed themselves to, to being entertained. So they go into something and they, you know, they're predisposed to, you know, to sort of enjoy the entertainment that's there. But what's interesting here is, does this not, by offering uh, an opinion that, that specifically highlights this vociferously is this not sort of encouraging the the defense that investment do, do you think that that you know that anybody who has perhaps already already invested or, or is already part of that community do you not think that they would they would react absolutely. against and i mean something that's absolutely and i wouldn't you know mm-hmm. i wouldn't expect otherwise if you put an investment in something and you're passionate about something then speak up about it you know i we never have a problem we've never closed off comments on anything on the site we i'm not and still Stick Twiddlers aren't interested in not allowing people to voice their opinions. I mean, you've seen from the comment section, there's 86 mm. comments on there. We've mm. replied to pretty much every single one of them where we felt like we wouldn't just be repeating ourselves or we would try and redirect someone to, to one of the other comments. And I have I have no problem with that. Like if, you know, I, I would be more concerned if, you know, if there was nothing that came back out of it. If someone didn't come back to me and go, well, hold on a minute, I don't agree with what you said. And, you know, it's it's just nature of life. Like you're always going to, in the same way that we said something that we didn't, you know, that you guys didn't agree with, you guys were saying something to us that we didn't agree with. And that's just the way it is. You know, if going back to the Monkey Island thing, if someone said to me, well, I think it's stupid you spent 200 quid on Monkey Island, I'd be like, well, no, hold on a second. It's something I'm passionate about. It's a project and a game that I'd really like to see and it's my money and I'll do what I want with it. But, okay. I, yeah, but, no, but I'm not going to I'm not then going to, you know, disregard your opinion just because, you know, it's not something that you understand or it's not something that you're interested in, regardless of however voracious you kind of viewed your opinion on that. You're entitled to that, you know. Mm-hmm. But I mean, uh, you raised something else as well about the whole cinema thing about, you know, people kind of being able to walk out. One of the things is 
we, we briefly discussed in the comments section, or I don't think it was with yourself, it was definitely with, with someone around kind of Kickstarter and crowdfunding still being quite a new model. And Star Citizen came up quite a lot in conversation um, uh-huh. in the fact that with Kickstarter, there's no real kind of payment protection for backers. So if you're uh-huh. investing that money in, in a product and at the end of the day, you don't like that product, there's nothing you can really do there. Like they're, they're, I think there's only really one kind of one set terms in Kickstarter, which is that they have to make an attempt to, they have to be shown to make an attempt to, uh, produce what they said they were going to and if they've done that then then there's nothing you can do about it if they've kind of taken the money and just gone how oh, we've got cash now and run then then there's certain procedures you can do around that um i've definitely been burned on that <laughs> duke nukem forever who thought that that was going to be uh, an absolute atrocity uh, certainly not me who pre-ordered the um collector's edition which sits on my shelf and mocks me on a daily basis but you know we kickstarted that there isn't really that that kind of net there so with with that i could i could then take that collector's edition i could take it back to a retailer because there are certain consumer rights around that so if, if it's a product that I didn't feel met my expectations a lot of people did you know Mass Effect 3 is another example mm-hmm. ending of that came around everyone was like well no this isn't what we expected we want our money back and there was a huge a huge piece around that um, but Kickstarter doesn't really offer that protection for the consumer and it is a massive gamble especially when you're talking about you know 150 pounds 200 pounds it's, it's a big gamble you know that the final product that comes out isn't something that that you would expect or that you're looking for and there's no real kind of you know protection around that in terms of how you can kind of recoup what whatever it is that you've invested okay yeah no i i i I get that i mean in relation to this obviously that's slightly aside in the Mm -hmm. fact that um that that investment's already there and also where in this particular case you're dealing with a a public limited company who has published accounts and uh uh, you know business offices that they've had for for 20 odd years Mm -hmm. so you know it kind of or or nearly 20 years it kind of um uh, sort of becomes a slightly different thing but certainly i think i can agree with you that um that kickstarter i'm, I'm probably not going to go as far as saying that uh, there are no uh, recourses that people in- can go to because there have been certainly been some yeah but uh, there aren't there are some and um at the same time i, I would agree with you that it is a little bit of a case of it being a speculation and certainly there's a there's a difference in relation to the psychology of the, co- the consumer and the psychology of the investor or the psychology of the speculator in relation to that which um which i think is an interesting tension i think that happens all over and you're you're getting that in in quite a few uh, uh kickstarters in terms of uh, the way in which they work however um there's a bit of a difference here and I, I think this is important to create a distinction between having an opinion on somebody else's decision choice and categorizing the individuals who have made that decision. Now, we've heard from Jamie, which uh, I think was great, actually, Jamie posting up on the uh, the comments page in relation to uh, his replies about uh, his off-the-cuff remarks, I think was very, very good. Mm-hmm. When are we going to hear from Alan? Uh, in regards to his comment of, of calling people who back this kind of business model a moron. Yeah. Um, it wasn't specifically requested, but if that's something that you would like, then then that's fine. But I mean, with the, the main reason we wanted Jamie to apologise was because, as we explained, Jamie is a self-confessed abuser of hyperbole. Um, and a lot of, of backers, understandably, took uh, one specific comment that he made um, particularly to heart. In regards to, to the other comments, um, it's, again, and it's it's a valid op- opinion in in our in our opinion. I don't. I'm not. I'm not going to apologise for opinion that we feel like that people okay. are. Um, I'm I'm a I'm, I'm a little bit uh, concerned about that. Okay. In that um, the the reason is that. I think there is a distinct difference here, and I, I, I actually, you know, I, I want to call you a little bit on the conflation between the two. Okay. There's a distinct difference here between criticising somebody's decision mm-hmm. and criticising individuals, mm-hmm. and I think that's where 
this certainly rubbed up the elite dangerous community mm-hmm. in terms of what's there. If somebody says that, um, well, you know, I think this was a stupid decision in terms of, of what you've made, or it's not a decision that I would make, mm-hmm. um, then I think that's that's distinctly different mm-hmm. to actually labeling those individuals, mm-hmm. because, you know, people can have these, these decisions for whatever reason they want. And similarly, from certainly from my experience in the last 18 months in relation to, you know, to, to the Kickstarter itself, to running a Kickstarter, to them being involved in running another Kickstarter, you really do find that actually your own circumstances in relation to why people invest things and what they invest things for, you have no idea. Mm-hmm. You know, you actually you don't know why they're choosing to do the things that they're choosing to do. And sometimes they have a very clear um, interest in what they're doing. Certainly for some of the individuals in relation to the Elite Dangerous Alpha, by getting the early access and then turning that around so that they can effectively review the footage before anybody else does that creates a level of privilege, which means that they can then effectively commodify that in, uh, in certain ways. Certainly we've seen YouTube paid accounts sort of running Elite Dangerous Alpha reviewing and achieving quite, uh, quite a great deal of, uh, of, of sort of uh, YouTube hits mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So obviously there, are, there have to be very, very good reasons, and I'm not necessarily saying that that would be everybody because it wouldn't be, but there are obviously a, a set of vested reasons as to why people would pay for these things. Yes. Um, doesn't it make categorizing a whole group of people like that kind of, kind of counterintuitive? I think that it's, again, it comes down to defining categorizing elite dangerous backers in particular and categorizing people who support that business model, which is the point that we were trying to make. As, as we explained in the comments as well, it just happened that Elite Dangerous were, at the time, a game and Frontier were a company that were enacting this business model. And as we said in the comments, and as one of the other ED backers said in the comments as well, they kind of became the crosshairs for this for this business practice, the same way that I feel Stickers has become a crosshairs for commenting on this business practice. We're not the only ones to, you know, we're not the only media outlet to have come out and said that we don't agree with it. Perhaps others have come out with mm-hmm. it in exactly the same way, but they, there's certainly been additional comments. Um, and I feel like, again, it's, it's rather aside the point, but I feel like at least we've made an attempt to actually talk to ED backers um, and and kind of talk this out as opposed to kind of throwing up something online letting people just flood the comment section with with whatever and disagree with it and not actually bothering to try and educate themselves or explain their point or or go into mm-hmm. further detail sure so are you are you then looking at um these uh, the other pricing models that uh, that you've mentioned i mean um obviously the you know the issue of microtransaction is something that's uh, that's a little bit longer it's been going on a little bit longer in yep. terms of the way in which this has been working i'm assuming then that you guys are, are covering uh, in relation to that i know that you did some stuff on um the sort of high price of things in the, the previous episode on the other games that were mentioned mm-hmm. i mean we've we've discussed microtransactions and we've mm-hmm. discussed steam early access and everything else that we've kind of would would throw under that kind of premise okay. and it's you know it's not a practice that we agree with we don't think that it's it's right to do you know and as you said microtransactions have been around a lot longer and unfortunately it's you know as as it stands it's become a relatively acceptable model while there are still a very vocal group of people who are like the you know we shouldn't microtransactions suck and we shouldn't have them and it's just money grabbing there's still payment going towards it and it's still a practice mm-hmm. it's you know it's one of those things that's become very long ingrained in gaming and i think it'll be a long time until we see it come the other way i mean i think a lot of us especially older gamers pine for the days of when you could unlock something purely by completing a game uh, rather than with a credit card you can still do that in, you can in but games. you can but it's in the minority these days like it's, okay I'd, it's primarily I'm kind of i'd kind of dispute that a little bit in that there are quite a lot of games where you can still unlock content in relation to how well you complete them i think that's slightly alarmist isn't it 
I don't think it's alarmist. I would say that it's definitely in the minority, especially in the, in the major- if you look at the majority of, of mainstream titles that are being produced, yeah. and especially when you have a publisher involved and there's investment and there's business profits and margins to be made. I mean, you get to the stage now where publishers refuse to pay developers bonuses based on their Metacritic score, which is ridiculous. But if you're looking at a publisher title and you're looking at a game that's being released because it's one of its primary aims is to be financially viable, then mm. they're going to reduce the amount well they're going to find ways to put in additional content like i i can't think of a game that i've i can't think of a triple a game or a mainstream game that i've played in the last year that hasn't had some sort of downloadable content attached to it at some point whether or not it's purely cosmetic or whether or not it's mm-hmm. it's a wider expansion or, or a piece of content okay um so so essentially your your assertion there is that microtransaction is is sort of a more prevalent than uh, game unlock content uh when you play through a game then i would say so yes from my, okay. from my personal experience Okay, um, I, I, you know, I, I have to say I would disagree. I think you can you can accrue accrue more content through playing a game than you can through a microtransaction. I'd say the balance is the other way. But um, I mean, that's aside. You know, the very existence of microtransaction in relation to uh, to game economics is obviously is a is a debatable concept in itself. Mm-hmm. So in relation to you know, just going back to um, the point in relation to to Elite Dangerous, in terms of uh, where we have this, I know that and I noticed certainly on the thread in in relation to to, to what we had, um, you made a, a clear distinction in relation to the, the pledge point mm-hmm. of the alpha and the beta access, and it's seen as being a, a sort of cumulative reward, which I think is, you know, is is the model of Kickstarter and the model of crowdsource funding uh, generally. Mm-hmm. And you made a, a distinction between that and the um, the pay for beta and pay for alpha access mm-hmm. later on. Now, my my sort of you know, sort of assessment in relation to what you've said is is that um, it's specifically that pay for access and that price point of that individual thing mm-hmm. that um, uh, that is the contention. Yeah. Um, would you suggest then that, that they should have? What should they have done in those circumstances um, if they were choosing to offer this? Um, also, I mean, either offer it free to everybody or not include it at all. I mean, the pro- I mean, you can see now really just looking at the. The fact that this kind of exists on the store, having put it in a beta and alpha access at a Kickstarter pledge, just kind of put FD in, you know, they've backed themselves into a corner. You know, the reasons why, you know, I've been told by ED backers that they have these on the store and why they're having to sell them at this price point is because people ask for it and because that's the price that it was prior to that. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm aware now that FD are also offering upgrades to to people who mm-hmm. want to do premium backers, but at, at the same time, there's potential loss of other perks in there from original kicks, you know, from original Kickstarter pledges. I think there's like a benchmark around anything kind of under 35, you're pretty much okay. I think in terms of you won't actually lose out on anything, but anything above you could it could potentially lose additional perks, and it just kind of to me demonstrates that the whole the whole business model for that is just a bit of a mess. Like it's it it wasn't well thought out in terms of how they were going to kind of proceed with that you know obviously you know a lot of people you know especially for elite dangerous seem to want to have early access to to the game and be involved in the testing point and and they felt that putting a price mark on that was going to be the best way to do that um which obviously we don't agree with but it seems just looking again at the kickstarter page it seems that there's they've kind of made financing a big kind of point of at what kind of level of of input of of how the game is going to be be developed? I mean, I was I was looking back again at the 
at the request of, of ED backers to kind of go away and do some more research, I was pretty shocked to find that it costs £75 before you can even get into the Elite Dangerous forums um, and 300 to get into the design ones. It's it's absolutely insane to me. Like, if anybody, regardless of whether you put in $2 or you put in 2000 um, you're backing a project that you feel passionate about. And I feel that regard, like, regardless of whatever your bankroll is, you should be able to have a place where you can not only provide feedback um, and and insight into the product that you're backing or the game that you're backing that you're clearly passionate enough about to, to put your money up in the first place, but also share in the experience and and conversations with other people who have backed those projects. It's, okay, it's can I just go through, and because and, obviously there are, there are three, well, uh, to me there are, there are three distinct sort of errors in relation to what you've just said then. One thing, access to forums is certainly not dependent on backing information uh, in, terms of open, uh, in terms of open access to the, uh, to the main forums area. There is a private backers forum, which is uh, open to a particular pledge point, uh, where there is some exclusive content revealed. Is that the 75 uh, Yeah, that'll be the private backers forum. Right. Uh, you can still register on the forums themselves, and you still have access to all the other areas and forums, including the games... Uh, development uh, or the games decisions forum, the games uh, sort of element forum where um, the uh, the developers still frequent and still go through mm-hmm. um, the design decisions forum. It's actually it's it's something that um, that's not been done. I, I don't think has been done in a, a wide sort of sense. Uh, not since um, I think it was Ill seventy two Sturmovich was uh, was a game that did a very uh, sort of interesting uh, sort of idea of the the developer consulting with um, with a wide group of players um, whilst improving the game. And I think there was also there was some stuff that, um, uh, that Star Wars Galaxies did later on with Rafe Costa, where he consulted with people before releasing stuff. But this, this did commodify that element. But at the same time, actually, the DDF, the way in which the DDF works is that design proposals are put forward, very, very you know, detailed design proposals are put forward. And uh, the backers then get to, to comment on all of that. And there is a, an agreement by Frontier Decisions, uh, Frontier Developments, that um, they will read all of the, uh, the backers' comments. So, you know, it does kind of uh, allow an input in relation to that but certainly what you said about access to actually talking to other people that's that's just not correct Um, i'd also want to catch you on the the point about the 35 pounds and then risking additional content I, i kind of don't understand what you've said there there was Certainly, the, in the initial Kickstarter, people pledged up to a given pledge point and obviously accrued a, a set of rewards in, in sort of ladder scale mm-hmm. in terms of what they were doing. And they also had that subsequently uh, when they were looking at uh, their own backing total, which we have the backer app, which was for a number of months. And then that was shut down in December. After the backer app, they then went into the store version. And then in the store version, what you're actually able to do is you can pledge and upgrade your pledge and you do gain this additional access, but I don't think you actually lose any of your backer awards. From what I've read from the FAQ, that seems to be the case, and on the forums as well, from what I was reading, there seems to be a lot of confusion as to whether or not that's the case. I know there's one member in particular who has bought, basically bought two copies of the game now because he attempted to upgrade, mm-hmm. so the majority that I'm seeing in the forums is a lot of posts from moderators asking them to email people, so they are they are addressing it, but it's just mm-hmm. it's just a kind of messy process. But kind of going back to what you were saying about 
mm. FD wanting to hear input from from everybody. Why have the £75 and the £300 price point at all then? Why not just, you know, if it's a community that are clearly passionate about the project, about the project and they mm. want to hear feedback from everyone, why include those price points at all? Why not just say, well, here are our forums. It doesn't matter how much you've paid. You know, because you've donated £300 doesn't mean that your design input is going to be any better than someone who's donated 15 so why not open it all up? Why why put those price points on there to start with? Um, I think I mean you know it obviously it creates a tier of um, of sort of information in relation to what's there and and creates an exclusivity of access. And I think that to be to be honest, you know people do pay for privileges like that in uh, uh, the way in which things work. I mean that's that's certainly how other business models outside of uh, of the games industry uh, would uh, would work in in particular ways. I'm kind of I, I kind of think that sometimes when you get to a situation where you have a very wide base of of opinion and certainly this this was the case in the ddf at the very beginning of the ddf there was such a wide base of opinion it's actually very difficult to, to sort of make progress in relation to what was there but um you know that sort of settled down as people decided to you know to sort of think about the way in which they were they were putting forward the, the suggestions that were there i think if you went wider i mean there are forty thousand elite backers if you went wider than that, it might be problematic, you know, in terms of uh, the way in which that structure would work. But, um, and, you know, I mean, obviously decisions have to be made uh, in terms of what's there. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, in the circumstances, I think that they've made a choice. And, um, and certainly, you know, the, the privilege of information is certainly is, is pro- not a problem in terms of how I see it. Do you, I mean, is it an issue? Do you think then that the fact that people have paid for that is an issue? I mean, is that, I is think that the f- problematic? I think you? the fact that frontier developments aren't opening up access to everybody who's shown an interest in the product is problematic. I mean, I, I don't, as I said, I don't think that however big your bankroll is or how big your disposable income is has any reflection on, on your value of input. Like, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Like, not everybody is going to have £75 or £300 mm-hmm. or whatever, but will still have ideas. They'll still want to have stuff that they want to kind of put to the team and be, hey, you know, look, I, I thought that this might be a cool idea or I thought that this, um, you know, might be something that would be interesting. It's Again, it's one of the things that comes, again, bound, back down to the original point that we were saying about the alpha and the beta. It's that mm-hmm. it's still a stage where it's kind of locked off by those who are able to bankroll it early. Um, until a much, much later stage where there could be stuff that's kind of already implemented. See, in practice, that doesn't really happen because in practice, what happens is if people have good suggestions, then usually they post them on the uh, the open forums and they're picked up by people who have access to the other forums. And similarly, um, the developers are available by PM. The developers are also available by email address. It's very simple to work out pretty much every developer or every person at the Frontier team in terms of working out what their email address is and, and you know they're, they're very contact so, in that regard so if if that ease of access is already there why put the price point on it at all it just seems like it's putting up financial barriers for for the sake of putting up financial barriers well it tends to be in terms of what the topic of discussion and what the uh, the element of discussion in relation to the shaping of the game is at a given time so it creates a, a level of privilege in terms of uh, uh, the element of of what you get in terms of the, the structure but then again i mean doesn't you know all kickstarters and all other crowdsource fundings create levels of privilege because they 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 pr- apply you know sort of privilege of content in terms of what they have if you take I don't know, if you take a, a piece of work that has an additional piece of content, an additional chapter that somebody you know, offers you for uh, a little bit more than paying for the normal version, is that a problem? 
I mean, you, you, you said that, you know, microtransactions, obviously, in that regard is a problem. Mm-hmm. Is it a problem in, you know, across all forms of media? Do you see that? I mean, should everything be at the same level and therefore at the same price point? If it's access to information, then I would say, yes, it should be. It, it, it shouldn't it okay. shouldn't be locked so, off. You should be able, regardless of whatever you're, as I said, I, I just feel like I'm repeating myself. I'm, yeah, no, sorry. Uh, I, uh, this, uh, it, it, should, it shouldn't matter what, what level of donation it is. You should, have, you should be able to have access to that information. If, if, and again, if the facilities are there for you to contact and put your ideas forward, then it, it, to me it doesn't seem like there is any reason to put those price points in there, aside from we needed a reward for, to tear something, and this, is, and this is what we've done. Um, but, I mean, that kind of suggests that there is a, you know, a sort of a lack of engagement in that regard. And I, I don't think that that's necessarily the case because obviously I've you know, experienced that for 18 months and um, I don't think there's a lack of engagement. I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just trying to get the difference here in terms of what you're saying, because, you know, I get the point in relation to what you're saying about privilege, but I'm, I'm kind of trying to reflect it across so that if you're looking at other products mm-hmm. and you were looking at something that, um, you know, that had, you know, say you have a version of an album that has 10 tracks in a version of an album that has 14 tracks on mm-hmm. it should you be paying this you know should you just should everyone just have the 14 track version I still I mean, don't, a, again I don't agree with that I still think that's ridiculous I think that if you shouldn't what's what's the point at the end of the day aside from it's it's more profitable like it's I'm I'm not I'm not a fan of it, having to show your support for a company or a product or a passion by voting with your wallet I think it's ludicrous I think it's just absolutely ridiculous I don't think however much money you earn or is or is disposable to you should hinder your enjoyment of something that you're passionate about. But don't you do that every time you buy you buy something? In in what way? Well, yeah. Any time you buy something, don't you don't you show your appreciation for a, for a company? You should, yes, but this is what I'm saying. It's not it's not tiered. The examples that you're giving oh, right. are, are tiered. You know, if if there was okay. if if it's a level product, if it's being offered to absolutely everybody, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Like if I buy a book, then it, it costs five pounds. Great. But if they release one, it's like, hey, this one costs ten pounds. We've put in three more chapters. I think that's ridiculous. Like why why do that? Like it's someone's shown a vested interest in your product and want to support you. So why try mm-hmm. and squeeze more money out of them and and then try and give them a little bit of additional content and do them out of of something that they enjoy enjoy reading. I just in that particular case. Okay, okay. Um, so in relation to this, then uh, you know, I think there's one thing we do have to address. That obviously that um, uh, some of the guys on uh, on Stick Twiddlers are, are Star Citizen backers. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming then that uh, the backing in relation to Star Citizen was simply to to place to support the the product. Yep, that's literally it. I mean, okay. we we both backed ten dollars. I I played Star Citizen God knows how many years ago. Um, saw that the the campaign had come up, and it's something that I wanted to see come to fruition. I had no I had no interest in in going in and playing an early version of the game like. If it, if it happened, it happened great. And when it comes around, I'll, I'll more than happily buy buy a copy of it. But that's that's literally the only level of engagement we had with it. Okay. And uh, the element of uh, of their fundraising in relation to the next big starship and uh, the other bits and pieces. I, I assume then that Stick Twiddlers will be commenting on that too. Uh, it's I mean it's so far gone now. I mean we did comment on it when it first came out. We're just again it's exactly the same situation. I think kind of pledging for any kind of content at that level is just right. ridiculous. Like why? What's the point? Like it's it's something. It should be. It's, it almost moves to a pay-to-win model. Okay. Um, I don't think it quite does because you don't really pay to win because all the stuff is is sort of accessed in, and, and available in terms of the game anyway, isn't it? But it, it gives you an earlier advantage. I mean, focusing oh, on like a more mainstream title, Battlefield is, is a game in particular that really had a problem with this by offering premium content backers. And they got to mm-hmm. the stage where you could literally just buy the weapons. And it, it creates an uneven playing field for absolutely everybody and ultimately, who hasn't paid and ultimately hinders the enjoyment of everybody else. 
else who hasn't decided to cough up 15 quid because they want to unlock everything early. You know, it almost ties down to one of the arguments that we hear a lot of time is you either have time or you have money. Mm -hmm. Those who have a lack of time will pay and those who have a lack of money will play. Um, And that's kind of the way it goes. But, you know, I I played a prime example for for me personally was I was a big Marvel War of Heroes player on on the iPhone trading card game. And I stuck with that Mm -hmm. probably for about two years. And it got to the stage where I just lost. I, I couldn't enjoy the game anymore just because everyone was going out and they were buying card packs and they were getting legendary cards and ultimate cards. And every time an event came up, mm-hmm. I would I would just get decimated. And I'd be like, well, what's the point in this anymore? Like, there's I'm not having fun with it. Everyone has has reached this whole new kind of tier because they've just the majority of them are just paying for for what they've got. Okay, so what essentially then uh, what we're we're talking about is is the the danger in relation to uh, sort of pay access and power creep. Yeah in terms of the, the way in which that would work. And, you know, you think that's that's particularly problematic in relation to uh, how these models are, are put forward in general? I think in terms of where you're offering specific perks like that, so specific in-game rewards, then absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, if, if it's... If you start off, you know, a game with a stick and then you've got a mate next to you who spent 15 quid and starts off with a shotgun and you've got a fight to the death, who's yeah. going to win? Like, it's it's no contest, really. I, I think, I mean, obviously that is something that uh, that has come in, uh, you know, sort of in the games industry in the last three or four years. Uh, we've seen sort of more of that happening. But, uh, in you know, in the specific instance of, uh, of what we've talked about, it's actually fairly minimal. Um, it doesn't really cover the um, uh, the sort of, you know, the early access elements. Um, and I take it then that you guys of have issues in relation to Steam early access. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Okay. And like we've we've commented actually, on, I think it was another podcast a couple of episodes ago. Uh, in sure. particular, it's usually whenever something comes up, and it's again, it's ridiculous. You know, it's especially some of the price points you see. It's just absolutely insane. Um, mm. You know, it's an early access game. It's unfinished, and yeah, like Kickstarter, you're taking a risk with with investing for it. But it's yeah, it's just not yeah, it's not good. So you know, essentially, then you know, I mean, I think we've kind of come to a uh, a fairly good conclusion in that uh, we've got a, a fairly clear understanding of, of where the issue is here, and certainly it is a, an interesting food for, food for thought in relation to um, how communities manage, you know, their, their, what they invest in and what they they sort of set up to you know to put forward, or how games manage what they sort of set up to put, put forward mm-hmm. uh, when they're looking at early access and and how that goes. I, I think kind of the, the the sort of closer or the the last points I'd like to go through. Uh, obviously, I, I think from my point of view, and certainly from you know the point of view of um, uh, elite dangerous community members, when you when you pay for something and when you are invested in something, when you spend time in something, certainly you know you can become sort of involved in the way in which that development works. Mm-hmm. And uh, it can be something that focuses, you know, that you focus on. And then obviously there is a wider perception in relation to, to how the game or how the um, the item, you know, it doesn't have to be a game, it could be something else, um, is received. And I think, you know, this, it's quite interesting to see how this is sort of perceived and received in a wider industry, which is why I'm I'm particularly interested, or I was particularly interested this evening to, you know, to sort of have this conversation with mm-hmm. you. So do you feel then that this, essentially by offering this kind of preview element in relation to, you know, the way in which it works, does that kind of colour the perception of a game in a wider community sense? Not in the sense of the, the backers, mm-hmm. in the sense of a wider community of, of appreciators of the, of the, you know, of, of the pastime, as it were. In in terms of what the paid model or 
Well, yeah, no, I'm, what I'm saying is if, I, if, you, if a game is produced mm-hmm. and it offers this kind of uh, early access or this kind of, you know, sort of uh, previewing opportunity mm-hmm. for people, does that then, for those that don't take it up or for those that, you know, only, only engage with that game later on after all this has gone through, mm-hmm. does that kind of colour their perception in relation to what this game is? I think, I think it, a lot of it depends on the game in question. I mean, I used Monkey Island as, as an example earlier. You know, having early access to a, to a game like that would obviously ruin my overall enjoyment of the final product. You know, it would be it would be finished, it would be released exactly as the developers intended it to be, but because I'd had early access, I'd had a limited version of, of what it was, and I'd know all the puzzles already. So, obviously, mm-hmm. that would kind of limit my, uh, my enjoyment of it. For a game that's kind of, especially, you know, on elite scale, it's, you know, I don't think early, I don't think early access and providing users with early access, um, not a paid model mind, is damaging to the overall enjoyment of the final product. You know, I, again, as I said, there's, it's a community that's incredibly passionate about a franchise that they've been invested in for an incredibly long time. And, you know, we, when we started this out, our intention was never to, to focus on the quality of Elite Dangerous as a game. And, you know, having that input in there and being able to buy that input is obviously incredibly valuable. We just don't agree with putting a pricing model around it and going, well, you mm. haven't paid this much, therefore we don't care about, you know, we don't want to hear what you have to say until December 2014 or whatever. You know, there, there are ways for, for both parties to be rewarded um, and both get something out of it um, that doesn't require putting up a financial paywall around it. You know, one of the one of the comments we've been getting is that, oh, it was done as a gating uh, mechanism. Uh-huh, so, uh-huh. well, there, there are plenty of other developers and publishers out there who release a certain amount of beta codes at a time. You know, if you have a you know if you have a certain amount of backers, say you know in this case twenty thousand, you know you kind of schedule out. This is what our beta dates are going to be like. This is how many beta codes we've got. We'll email out a, a select bunch of you, and then uh-huh, get a beta uh-huh. period for that time. And it's you know it's a model that has happened for a while, and it's one that seems to work you know rather well. You know, I've not been, uh, and it seems to as well kind of almost drum up a lot more interest in the title from my perspective as well i mean we've given away codes for beta codes for wildstar in particular um, which is a uh-huh. new mmo coming from ncsoft which alan won't shut up about because he thinks it's the best <laughs> thing since anything and we had members of our community who'd previously really shown no interest in mmos um genuinely interested in wanting to get hold of these beta codes partly because it's a men- human mental psychology of like oh it's something free i want it um uh-huh. and it's exclusive but also at the same time you know it kind of encouraged them to check out something new you know, there's no risk there. There's only reward for both parties. There's reward for, for the gamer who can come in and be like, well, this is, you know, it's a new game. I've got an exclusive. I've got to look at something and ultimately could say, hey, this is something I really enjoy and I'll go on to buy it. Developer gets mm-hmm. the feedback that they were potentially looking for unless the person taking part decides that they don't actually like it at all or they just don't want to provide feedback and then back out of it. So no one's lost anything and, and everyone's only really gained something from that, which is, you know, one of the one of the main reasons why we don't agree with a paid access model. I can kind of see the, the argument now in terms of uh, the way in which you've, you've put that forward. But the only thing that I think that, you know, it kind of boils down to is the there is, a, there is obviously a, a, an argument to be had in relation to uh, a paid access model and in relation to, um, to a microtransactions model and, you know, and the other methods by which companies uh, are electing to sort of change the distribution model in relation to, you know, the games that they're attempting to, to put forward. And I can kind of, I can, I can see where you're coming from in, uh, in that. But in terms 
terms of those who elect to take it up, mm-hmm. the criticism of the decision is is a criticism of the decision. Um, and criticism of the individuals, obviously, is something slightly different. And you know, and I think that's probably where you know the uh, the elite backers essentially got uh, slightly riled. Oh no, abs- you know, abs- absolutely. You know, as, as as I said earlier, and I said in the comments, you know, yeah, sure. it wasn't aimed or intended to be aimed at elite dangerous backers. It was intended to be mm. aimed at the business model. And the sure. fact that we don't support the decision to back that business model because we don't feel right. like it's beneficial. Okay. So again, like you know, as, as we explained in the comments, our our intention was never to to go for elite for elite dangerous. Um, it was always to go for the business model. And as sure. we explained, I think it was in my first comment to you. If that's not how Andy yeah. Russell was fully explained in the video, I apologise. And then I went forward to clarify a position on that. And that you know that we that that I'm, I'm more than happy to apologise for. You know, if it feels if if the community felt like that we were purposely attacking something that they feel so powerful about and they reacted the way they did which again as I explained earlier is something I would totally expect and I understand but I'm more than happy to put up my hands and go actually no that's not what we are intending to do we're yeah, focusing sure. on the business model we're not focusing on Elite Dangerous um, as a game um, it's just the business model Sure. No, I understand that. I think it was more the case that they felt they were personally attacked. But um, yeah, no, I, I appreciate the sentiment, and I think that uh, uh, that the elements are there. That's great. Okay, Ben, thank you very much, and uh, we'll take this back to the regular podcast. Okay, so um, having come back from that, uh, I, you know, obviously I'm a little close to it. But um, guys, any thoughts on uh, what Ben had to say? Well, yeah, I had I had a few thoughts on you know quite a bit of what he said because he he covered a lot of ground and and to be honest, I was a little bit underwhelmed by you know some of the arguments you know that he made about you know offering early access you know because I'd have thought that you know we'd have had time to prepare for an interview and, and given that they have such strong opinions about it, you'd have thought they would they'd have had some really compelling arguments you know to back up their claim that this early access is particularly you know damaging to the process. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, you know, it sort of has a little bit of naivety to it, doesn't it? In that um, I did make the point about um, in a, when you're spending disposable income, ultimately you're placing a value on something. And by placing a value on something, you're agreeing to pay for it. And, you know, kind of most society's about that, isn't it? Well, it's, it's supply and demand. And, you know, it's, it's the way the world works. But uh, ultimately, I, I think, you know, when it got down to it, the best he had to offer really was he was talking about, you know, a potential, you know, for delays in the development process. But there was no, there was no kind of quantifying of the problem and there was no contextual of it and you know I, I kind of drawn on the analogy with like um, like the kind of like anti-drugs or anti-marijuana kind of lobbyists who, who who talk all day about you know a potential for you know harm you know if it proliferates or if it's legal or whatever but but it's never quantified um, and it's never put in the context of you know other drugs you know like you know, illegal drugs in particular like alcohol and tobacco but I didn't want to go off on too much of a tangent but the point was that you know it's I don't want to just call it scaremongering you know because you know, I think there may be a bit more to it, but without any kind of quantifying of the problem, you know, I, I can't see how they're so confident in their appraisal of the situation and, and to continue rallying against it on such a public forum like that. Um, you know, you'd have thought they'd have they'd have been a bit more to it. Yeah, no, with you. Um, I think I think it's it's an interesting point in relation to perception because, of course, we have been in this bubble for quite some time in terms of the development and you know how communities when they purchase something or, or when it, when any individual purchases something they you know they ascribe a value to it and by ascribing a value to it they value it. So it does create a certain amount of brand loyalty in relation to what's there. And I think that you know that is something that's you know that's prevalent here. And I think that. 
when you see someone from the outside of that not really understand you know that level of value and also you know sort of look at it from a different perspective i think that's interesting and i think it is something we are going to have to you know to see and deal with as the you know as the game goes out to a wider and wider audience but you know i mean there are a couple of fundamental things here that were were sort of said one is that frontier offered these things because people asked for them so if people ask for them then they're prepared to pay for them so you know there's kind of that and two is do you stand outside a pound shop with a loudspeaker and yell in the face of people who buy something that's cheap that you wouldn't buy no you don't so it's kind of a bit weird really to to sort of hoist a flag up and start protesting about a pricing model when people buy the things that they want to buy and fundamentally that's how a capitalist economy works I, I i really don't understand how there, there can be some sort of oblique i don't know protest in relation to that it, it didn't come across as very well thought through um and it didn't come across as very well well you know understood yeah and i think the misunderstanding is the idea that somehow people are paying to test the game i don't think anybody at any point has thought yeah, I really want to. I really want to test Elite for the. <laughs> you know, people people wanted early access. They wanted behind the scenes access. They wanted to get their hands on, you know, what what Elite was shaping up into as soon as they possibly could. And of course, by being part of the alpha and beta process, you know, you are able to influence the design of the game because Frontier are very much listening to people's feedback about how things work. And the, you know, the the only analogy I can think of is that. You know, if you if you pay like for a gig, people will pay extra for backstage passes and you could shout at those people and say, why do you want to go backstage? They're not going to be playing any music backstage. You know, <laughs> all, all the enjoyment you're going to get out of the gig is in the crowd with everybody else. It's like, yeah, but, but I can go backstage. It's like, no, they're not they're not going to be playing back there. It's like, I don't care. I want to go backstage. So there's this fundamental misunderstanding about what people who are fans of a thing are prepared to pay to be part of a kind of an insider community. And I don't think, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And the, the very idea that the only reason Frontier have done it is to kind of outsource their testing is a little bit ludicrous because, I mean, the, 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 there's two sides to it. One is obviously they do do their own testing. And the other thing is, with my cynical hat on, if anyone believes that any PC game doesn't get its major testing when it's released to the wider public they're fooling themselves you know everybody who buys a game at 1.0 of the engine is testing it for the developers and you can tell that because normally when you buy a game and you sit down to play it for the first time on the day of release most of the time you end up installing a 1.3 patch yeah no with you there i mean also there was the 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 absolutely laughable point and i don't know how you even thought this was uh, this was possible of that downloadable content, uh, you know, paid for downloadable content is is greater than the amount of content you can find in a game when you elect to play it. And I, I just, I, I don't know how he said that. I don't know why. It just, just seems so strange that you would think even, you know, even if you take some of the EA stuff, if you if you look at the the fact that, you know, that they're looking at microtransactions and this, that and the other, and okay, you know, you, you make your choice as to whether you want microtransactions or whether you want to buy microtransaction content or anything else. But to suggest that there's more content available through uh, microtransaction than there is through just playing the game normally. Yes, there is a percentage more but there is not more 
as in more content in the microtransaction. I, I just, I, I, I couldn't work that out. Fundamentally, I thought, well, where's your statistics? You know, and I went back to, you know, to sort of what John was, was kind of saying, because I can't see that in any game I've ever played, that there was more content by paying the extra five quid for the add-on in that add-on than there was in the rest of the game. And I think fundamentally as well, the, the important thing to remember about Elite Dangerous is that, I mean, David Braben has said time and time again that he's free to make this game because he's been freed by the considerations of a large publishing label. Because a large publishing label would provide the money and they would say, right, you need to make the game this way and for this demographic. And of course, Elite Dangerous is funded by the people that want to play it. So in that sense, Frontier are answerable to those people who backed, you know, £200 or whatever for the Kickstarter because they are, they are the backers. They are the, the people funding the game fundamentally. So to, to kind of turn around and say, well, actually, I don't want end users to pay for the development of a game. I would rather have homogenous games developed by financers and, you know, corporate backers. And then we're just presented with products at the end of the process that we can like or not. Doesn't seem like a very good argument to me. No, it, I mean it comes back to the film argument, and you know, and the pump primer funding, and how um, some of you know some sort of film arguments work in ter- you know terms of getting the money up front in terms of what you're you're attempting to put forward. So, Jarvis, I'm not entirely sure that you can say that Frontier Developments are held accountable by their you know by their backers because you know the Kickstarter was basically a donation. You know, they they have no obligation to us apart from to deliver the rewards in other words you know produce a game yeah the fact that they are involving us is great but in terms of being held accountable by us i don't think that's actually the case i mean if you think about it now that they're a shareholder company you know they're accountable to their shareholders which trying to look at it it's very difficult because obviously we're very, very close to the subject matter but trying to look at it from an outsider's point of view yeah it could be seen that frontier developments have been very aggressive in terms of putting the prices and promoting the prices of getting into the testing getting into the alpha and giving various discounts and stuff and you know, some people have said that you know maybe the alpha testing stage has actually gone on a little bit longer because frontier developments are trying to make more money out of people coming on board and getting into the alpha. These are all the things that we're hearing yeah, on the various social media. And, and you look at it and you say, well, that's not really the case. But the more and more I look at you know, the Facebook page and some of the comments on there, you know, there does seem to be a very vocal minority of people that keep on coming back and saying you know frontier developments are you know are money grabbing and if you think about the fact that they're only accountable to their shareholders really then you know maybe there is an element of them trying to just get a little bit more revenue a little bit more revenue before they actually release the game yeah i think that's very true Foz, and i think certainly this is the key point that actually is worth discussing in relation to uh, to what ben put forward is you know there is a perception and there is a an element whereby it's a different model when you go cap in hand to the people who are who are out there and who are going to be your end users and you're asking them to you know to sort of effectively invest in the uh, the product up front on certain terms and conditions which you know essentially aren't shareholder terms and conditions and at the same time the psychology of being a consumer buying a product and being a pledger 
you know, putting money into a product to wish it goodwill and wish that it will be, you know, fulfilled is very, very different. And, you know, this is new territory for any crowdsource fund. And, of course, when um, uh, when companies then take a crowdsource fund and they then host it themselves afterwards and then they start to commodify certain elements of that crowdsource fund, you know, it is very, very different. And certainly from the outside point of view, when you're not part of a community that's, you know, that's involved in this from an outside point of view, you could look at that and say that's, that's pretty cynical. But mm. then again, there, there are funding models that are just as cynical, but we just don't see as much detail of them. You know, they're not transparent. Um, if you think about, you know, how major investors get into, you know, to franchises, get into movie franchises and other things, an awful lot of the time, you know, that money is invested into um, a film and the film is literally an advertisement for the level mm-hmm. of technology. Um, if you take Avatar, for example, you know, the the majority of technology that's been produced in Avatar is then used in other films and it's licensed and it's rented to other films, you know, because the development was done in the first film and the film is the showcase you know the showcase then gets them you know sort of all the revenue from from all the the other film projects that they they get involved in so these models are cynical and i think we anybody that doesn't think that capitalism is about making a profit by any means because it is ultimately about making a profit you know anybody that thinks that it isn't um, I, I think he's kind of perhaps being a bit naive yeah, absolutely. And when it comes back to Elite Dangerous, you know, you would hope, as uh, being the loyal fanboy, that you know any profit they make can only be a good thing for the you know the longevity of the the game and the universe. Absolutely. John? Yeah, I mean, just kind of to you know, because a lot of other stuff was said, and, and I kind of wanted to get to that to kind of draw a line under this the way they approached it. You've got two value judgments haven't you at the end of the day you've got the people who are backing it who think that you know this early access is you know value for money for them it's something they want Uh, and from the outside ben has said that they don't agree with that you know and that's all it is it's just a difference of opinion i I think that if they're going to be kind of forcefully putting forward their opinion as in trying to maybe persuade people it's the wrong thing they need to do more than just say that we don't like it they kind of they need to say why they need to say this is damaging to games or something like that and they need to demonstrate that and they, they haven't made their case that i mean that's what i took away from it you know i, I think that it's, it's one thing to put forward saying that uh, you don't agree with it but then to whether they intended to call people morons or whatever they, they kind of took that back they, they tried to say that you know that's not they didn't mean to target the elite dangerous people but they did kind of in a way in the elite dangerous community came under the umbrella of their attack and I think by doing that, that's when they overstepped the boundary, I guess, in saying that um, it wasn't just their opinion that it's wrong, but it's their opinion that these other people are wrong and not just wrong that they're, they're you know, moronic or whatever. Um, but moving on, I mean, there was so much more said in the interview and it was all kind of related, I guess. And there was a lot of bugbears and I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about them now. But I wanted to pick up Ben on a distinction he made when you were talking about Kickstarter, Alan, and how he was talking about how he felt that people that were backing Kickstarter projects weren't protected like if they you know, bought the more conventional publisher route. I, I really had an issue with that because in the sense that he referred to it, in, in that people were getting, you know, they were getting delivered a product that they, you know, weren't happy with. Nobody has that protection, even in the current, you know, normal model. You go into a shop, you don't have that protection. I mean, he mentioned Duke Nukem Forever and how disappointed he was with it. Now, I'm sorry, you can't play a game and think, oh, you know what, this isn't as good as I thought it was going to be, and send it back for a refund. 
it doesn't work that way. If you've unsealed a game, you don't get a refund unless like the game was defective, like it was physically damaged, or you know, an extreme case where the game was unplayable. So I don't understand where he seemed to think that people backing a Kickstarter had less like kind of legal rights because I think they're pretty much the same rights that if they don't deliver then you've got a case but if they do deliver just because you don't like it doesn't mean you deserve a refund I don't know if that's strictly true because surely if you I mean you don't even have to go any further than you know the uh, Elite Dangerous Kickstarter there are projects out there that we have backed on the fiction side that are never going to come to fruition I mean you know they're dead in the water and you've got no comeback against that you donated the money well no you do that's the thing you have a legal comeback if somebody doesn't deliver it's a contract you have with them and so if somebody hasn't delivered then you have a right under the law to take action has that actually been proven yet in any kickstarter yes it has it has done yes um kickstarter are actually a a fairly good in terms of the you know the delivery element and i'm i'm quite surprised that um there are one or two of the subsidiary products that are obviously you know that they've announced delivery dates and and perhaps those delivery dates have passed so actually yeah there is a recourse in relation to that and i think it has happened previously in kickstarter i would say i do think crowdsource funding is a little bit sort of wild westy mm. i do think there is a level of because i don't think people you know quite understand the psychology difference between investment you know and, and and sort of being a consumer i don't think that's that's incredibly clear and i think there have been projects where you know people have have kind of done stuff and moved sort of ideas and it's it's you know very blatantly been delivering something that really wasn't what you know what they they were kind of living up to what they'd said in the first place but i do completely take john's point and there is a recourse and if there wasn't a recourse it's backed by amazon if there wasn't a recourse there would be a huge outcry Mm. in that regard just trying to play devil's advocate for a second here i mean is there anything that you guys can see with the way that frontier developments are sort of pitching this or the way that the funding model is currently going that will be uh detrimental to getting new backers in i mean do you think the fact for example that we've all had you know this early access this early beta access is gonna from an outsider's point of view say well you know these guys have been playing it for you know for months or for not years and you know you can see all the youtube videos they're all going to be much better than me there's no point in me jumping on that bandwagon now it's finally being released because you know i'm not going to stand a chance no i don't think that's really a danger i think the the key thing you know and i do take a, a small point in relation to, to what ben said and you know john picked it up the key thing is the stresses and strains of development and i think we are seeing in the community some of the reflected stresses and strains when you know alpha access is there and alpha you know they find problems or this that and the other and beta is delayed and of course because people have paid for something when it's delayed that creates a tension and i think that you know when they even when it said you know estimated time of arrival is this and actually it's delivered a month late or or you know six weeks late or whatever it is i think there is a tension there and i think that you know crowdsource projects can alleviate that tension by being very very clear with their um their funders and i think in this case you know there are one or two places where frontier have perhaps not handled that as well as they could have handled it i think certainly you know other crowdsource funders have had the same tensions you know some very major projects have had the same tensions particularly in the board game area you know if there was uh, quality of pieces weren't up to scratch or something else and they've had to go back and so on and so forth yeah people are generally and i say this generally very reasonable when you are very very clear with them so yeah so just anticipating concerns is always the best policy you know getting ahead of them 
uh, is always the best policy. Certainly, you know, and obviously I can only allude to this on a smaller scale because my Kickstarter was much smaller. But certainly with when I was doing mine, being very clear and also trying to communicate as often as possible, even when you think you have nothing to say, letting people know that you're still saying things and you're still around and things are still ticking on is important. And I think it needs to be done. Yeah, another highlight for me of the interview, um, and and you know, is you know just the standout things for me, and you know, talking about the pricing model, uh, and I thought Alan did quite well to kind of hold Ben's feet to the fire to to, to kind of really get cut through and and get to what exactly his objection was over the pricing models, because I thought Ben's distinction was arbitrary at best, uh, and I think in the end Ben conceded that he had a problem with tiered purchases. I mean, that was the word he used. He's fine with flat-out purchases, but he's not into the tiered stuff. Um, and I think you used the example of, you know, for example, example, and you know, you go and buy a CD, and and you know, some, you know, you could potentially have a, you know, like a bonus CD which had a couple of extra tracks on, and you kind of forced him into the corner, and and he basically said that he had a problem with tiered purchases. This kind of gave me something to think about, and at the end of the the analogy I came up with was like a bakery. The main product at the bakery is a loaf of bread, for instance. You know, and everyone comes in and they buy their loaf of bread. But, um, you know, if some people want a croissant, okay, then surely they just sell them the croissant and make some money. But Ben seems to think that it would be better if everyone just paid the same amount for the price of bread and got the croissant as well, even if that meant the bakery starts losing money and then has to stop making croissants. You know, and he explicitly said it himself. You know, either the pledge reward should be available to everybody or they should not be, you know, they shouldn't be sold. So as soon as you take it and you, you, you compare it to other businesses, and this is the, this is the big point, okay, is I, I think people are missing, that it's not like this stuff hasn't been done before in other businesses and in, you know, different uh, industries. It's, it's almost like a asking for special exceptions because it's software or it's because it's a game. And it, I just, it just doesn't make sense to me that if people want to pay extra money for an extra thing, that they can't do it. Agreed. Um, I think as well, you know, the, there is this level of exclusivity and, you know, I mean, there was this this sort of idea he was sort of asserting about the, you know, why on earth would you have these, you know, these design decision areas and, you know, people allowed to contribute comments if, you know, what does that mean the designers don't listen to anybody else? Surely there are people out there who've got really good points who are outside of this, you know, this bubble. And so, of course, I, you know, I equated, well, you know, actually the designers do read the other forums as well. And then he, he kind of tried to flip that around and say, well, then what's the point in the tiered access? And in itself, you kind of look at that and go, well, okay, you know, it's, it's fair enough, you know, but, but then again, if I'm an expert in a field and I see something that's good as a comment, then I'm likely to, to listen to it. I'm likely to read it. I'm likely to look at it. But when, when there is an exclusive area where these, these individuals, you know, are all sort of, of, of paid a certain amount, that certainly makes you pay attention in relation to what's there. And Frontier gave an obligation to, you know, to the backers to say, we will read everything in the DDF. Um, and certainly the way in which it's worked out practically is an awful lot of the good comments that have come up in other forums by people who are not necessarily in the DDF have filtered through because the DDF have seen themselves as champions of, you know, of trying to, to bring good practice into into the development of the game. Similarly, the Ulite community has gone out there and, and kind of, you know, taken stuff over to, to there and, you know, and, and got comments from there and brought them back. And I see no trouble in that at all because we all want a good game. And actually, if people have... 
you know, paid for DDF access or anything else, that's fine. They know Frontier will be will be listing in in that particular forum. So if they see stuff that you know that they think is useful, they they're almost enabled in that regard. And it sort of reverses this sort of brand defense element, you know, or, or you know the investment element in in relation to brand defense. It was very clear to me that Ben had no understanding of that process because he's never experienced it. Okay, final thoughts. I just I just wanted to go back to um, the gated content which was kind of towards the end because you know this would seems to be a bit of a bugbear for a lot of people it's not just you know Ben or, or Twiddlesticks you know a lot of people out there they at best they think that uh, developers are purposely creating gated content rather than delivering value for money or at worst you know they're trying to cynically milk people for money or, or even defrauding them but uh, you've got the opposite side of the argument as well which is that um, developers are creating additional content they're extending the lifetime of games they're creating value for money and and more importantly they're giving players more of what they want and so again if is this just a battle of opinion um you know which one is it but instead of just like spouting opinion, um, it would be nice to actually do some research and gather some data to find out, you know, is there a way it's going? Now, obviously, with like mobile games and things like that, it's a very young market, so it's going to be quite hard to study. And I'm actually speaking to um, uh, a website now that collects data on ga- how, how much time people are playing games at the moment. Uh, and I'm hoping to get the data of them so I can actually collate the information and produce like a short white paper on it. Um, I wanted to get it ready for the podcast, but um, they're a bit slow getting back to me. But ultimately, you know, if we look at AAA games, okay, or, or you know, just games in general now, compared to, you know, if we look at them historically over time, are are we seeing a problem where developers are instead of, you know, they're delivering less to the consumer and then creating this gated content and then making them pay more for it? Or are we seeing games getting naturally bigger anyway, especially considering we got the, you know, the advent of the uh, sandbox game? And are we just seeing what the industry are telling us, which is they're just adding content and, you know, they're obviously... that adding that content costs money so they have to charge for it uh, but at the same time they can be giving value back to people and so i think that needs to be investigated because just looking at my experiences you know you've got games like gta now that game gets bigger every time there's a, a new iteration of it um, and i'm sure if you adjust for inflation you'll find that they're probably getting more value for money minecraft very you know cheap game to buy how many hours do you get out of that? And I'm thinking that, you know, compared to the old games of the past, you know, just thinking about things like Chaos, okay, that was a good one because it had a lot of replay value. But then a lot of the other games around that time, you didn't have much, you know, there wasn't a lot of um, entertainment value to them when compared to a lot of the games today. So I'm going to be interested to see what is the case. Is there going to be a kind of a graph where, you know, the amount of time you get playing a game increases as time goes on. I think there's just, yeah, there's just one thing I was going to chip in on where th- this idea about paying extra for DLC because obviously people need to go on and develop it. There was one, and I'm, I've been racking my brain trying to think of it, but there was a notorious example where a game was released with then an additional payment for supposedly DLC but actually when someone looked into it the actual content had already been created it was already on the disc so effectively you're buying a game on which there is a portion of the disc that is blocked off until you pay a bit more to unlock that section and I think that's a tricky area I think sometimes you know there is an element I think sometimes you know some publishing companies are trying to just get a bit more money out of users but i think as john says in you know generally speaking it is about funding additional content 
Uh, uh, sorry, just just quickly on what um, Chris just said there. I think it's all about in context of other media and other forms of entertainment. And you know, probably the most objective way to break it down is to say, if I spend ten pounds, how much entertainment will I get out of this? And to be fair, video games per pound provide more entertainment than watching a movie, for instance. And so, you know, if you look at it that way and the amount of time you spend, you know, playing the game and how much entertainment it's going to give you, then you can almost justify that kind of thing of saying, well, what we'll do is we'll say, well, we'll, we'll give them 40 hours of gameplay because that's the, indust- that's, that's the current kind of average in the industry. Um, but we'll also ship it with this extra stuff and we'll say you can pay for this extra stuff. And in a way, that'll send the, save the end user money because they don't have to go and buy another disc or <laughs> the, the, they, they kind of make it more efficient. You know, again, it's all down to perception. Okay, well, I think everybody will agree that was an interesting topic for discussion. And thank you very much to Ben Cordell for coming on to the show and speaking with Alan and clarifying some of his views. Okay, I'm sure it's something we're probably going to be revisiting as the development cycle continues. But just for the moment, let's hear from some of our community and go to community questions. Chris, you've got the first one. Yeah, this is from uh, our our buddy uh, Bingo Brewster. He's got a point about stealth mode and silent running. Um, And I think this is something, I mean, this is something that's occurred to me as well. He really wants to know about how effective stealth mode is i.e turning down the heat of your ship and running silent and he's saying because some people seem to think it makes you invisible and he's saying as far as i know it just stops the the range from which your radar becomes effective but i think that the point that he's really raising here which is a very valid point is in order to run silent you have no shields and your shields take a long time to start up again so he kind of i think what he's looking for is he's looking for some sort of reassurance in the game that stealth is really effective because if it's not really effective, it's safer to just have your shields on and run away if someone starts shooting. And I think, per- personally, I mean, obviously he's, he's asking us to, to sort of have a bit of a debate on this, but I think from my point of view, yeah, I, I think I actually quite agree with this. Unless I can see that there's some mechanism in the game that demonstrates how effective stealthiness is. Bearing in mind that, of course, line of sight yeah. is completely unaffected by stealth mode, I would feel very uncomfortable traveling through a hostile area with my shields down unless i felt that it was a marginal chance that i'd be spotted what do you guys think no i agree with that mate and you're right i mean you think back to you know games where stealth plays uh, a part things like you know your solid snakes and stuff like that you've got an indicator within the game itself that lets you know your area of detectability which comes with line of sight, comes with noise, comes with everything else. But you know, there isn't that sort of uh, visibility within Elite Dangerous, which means you're kind of flying blind yourself, even more so than the people that you're trying to you know, sneak up on, because it's just it's a little bit too fuzzy at the moment. So I must admit, I know that Alan's done some stuff with stealth, but you know, for the same reason that, uh, that Bingo Brewster uh, says, I just think the payoff of having no shields is just too high at the moment uh, to even risk using stealth, so I haven't bothered. To be fair to Frontier, they they did some rebalancing with this because if you remember in the first alpha, your shields took ages to come back up after you know after you went out of you know silent running, and they did change it so that they come back a lot quicker. Uh, and in fact, they changed the mechanic, didn't they? Because they did it so that um, they were down longer, but then they came back quicker. And so that meant that if you were silent running, as soon as you turn your shields back on, they did come back a lot quicker. And I think that solved a lot of complaints about it but when it comes to should you have a big light that in effect goes red telling you that nobody can see you 
I don't know. Um, you know, like like in those other games, I, I don't know if I like that. I mean, it kind of adds an extra kind of level of skill to the game that you know once you've used um, the stealth mechanic enough, you you can learn the how far it extends. And you know what you can and can't get away with in a way, and so it's another skill to be learned. It's another level of knowledge, which can empower you if you've mastered it. I think the potential's there for for a good mechanic, but it comes down to balance. Just to go back to the example that he gives, he says, you know, I I, I approached an anaconda in silent running, and it opened fire on him at about two point nine kilometers. Now, being as their lasers only have a range of three kilometers, it hardly seemed to be worth the efforts. Now, Alan, I know you've dabbled with stealth what's your thoughts it's interesting um i've not really used stealth in um too much of a uh, an attack as it were i've done some pot shooting and some some sniping uh, at distance and that you know that appeared to work and basically it was a case of setting yourself up in a viewpoint going dark and then just maneuvering using your thrusters very very slowly into a position and then you know sort of going at whatever you're, you're choosing to fire at very very carefully at maximum range you know that's that's an interesting game it certainly creates a, a very different feeling for you in the cockpit which is is interesting the other use though and i think is the more useful method is when you're being chased and to try and find a way to get out of visual range flick stealth mode on then shut your systems down and then hopefully people will just go on by using asteroid fields using other other debris fields using you know other sort of obstructions to kind of assist with the way in which you do that and i think actually that's the mechanic that you know i'd want to see it work for as it were i you know i don't think they've necessarily got it dead right yet in f19 stealth fighter which i always used to love even though it wasn't a particularly good simulator game uh f117a was much better as a simulator game um, but in f19 stealth fighter you could fly over stuff and you turned on your 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 stealth settings and you didn't know whether they were working or not but you just had to judge it based on people's reactions whether they you know came in and attacked you or they didn't and um i think you know i think i think that kind of hard skill element is is important okay and the next question comes in from rory scarlet this is quite an amusing one can we pick a name for his homebrew that he especially created for the elite dangerous game now i have it on good authority he's taken a sample of his homebrew and he can say that it is a caramel toffee multi flavor with a good floral and citrus uh, tones on the nose people have been voting on this on the forum and it's come to us uh, to to pick a name now there have been many very amusing names put down just to read you some of these out we've had the uh, the braben's belly buster the federation's reserve ale uh, the cobra tooth commander's lament frameshift ale etc etc okay so after far too long a deliberation the lay radio crew have narrowed it down to a select three we've gone for because it's a, an ipa uh we've uh, narrowed it down to imperial pale ale uh we quite liked asp exploder and we also liked nice asp now jarvis why was it particularly that you like nice asp well it's because uh, in going through the audio recordings one of the problems uh, that we've had on multiple takes is is in the heat of a, a bit of exciting narrative is making the de- distinction between asp an ass. So for me, that's quite uh, a nice little, <laughs> just a nice little reference. Uh, the number of you know uh, well-armed asses we've had flying around the the uh, universe, or uh, particularly well-equipped shits. Um, <laughs> so, 
For me, that's just quite a nice little reference. The results basically came back in that two of us voted for the IPA, the Imperial Pale Ale, and two of us voted for the nice ASP. So for that rationale, we've decided to give it to the ASP Exploder, which nobody voted for because we all love compromise on this show. So congratulations to ASP Explorer and his drink, the ASP Exploder, which is Rory Scarlett's new homebrew name. Great stuff. Okay, and the next question comes in from, well, there's a couple actually, one from Darren Gray and one from Colin Ford, both of which pick up on the loadout that we're currently testing uh, in Alpha 3.4. Now, I'm guessing I'm probably the only person here that has a Cobra Mark III. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Alan? Yeah, you're the only person who has a Cobra Mark III. <laughs> um, in which case, uh, what's your favorite loadouts then for your Sidewinders? Well, everyone knows what my favorite loadout is. Um, and if I had time to be playing the Alpha to get up to a Cobra, which I might do over this weekend, then um, I'd be looking for four beam lasers, no gimbling, because, you know, I, I really like the, you know, the, the normal aiming system. So, so yeah. I'm kind of the opposite, I guess. I, I do like the gimbaled weapons, because probably because I'm really rubbish. <laughs> I got terrible aim, so they do help me out a bit. So I, I basically want to pack, you know, as many gimbaled lasers as possible. Beamed ones, I do find overheat a bit too quickly. But there's been mention on, on the in the chat room that if you pulse them, they're more effective. So once I got some more stability, I'm going to try that out. And again, I've heard different different takes on like the Gatling guns. Apparently they are more effective once the shields are down. Yeah. So um, I, I think I need to do some more exploration. But at the moment for me, it's, it's gimbaled lasers. And Jarvis? Yeah, I definitely like the style of Gatling guns. I like that kind of sense of a sort of World War I dogfight that it gives to the game. But I think for me, it's got to be, if there's space, a combination of a beam laser and probably missiles. I'm kind of a missiles guy. I, I, I'm quite, I think it's sort of an old strategy from, from space combat games, um, particularly when facing multiple opponents. What I like to do is to send a missile after one person that they then have to spend time evading and getting out of the way. And then once I've done that, I can focus on a different target. So for managing kind of group combat, uh, missiles are an essential part of a loadout for me. Okay, well, for the Cobra Mark III, obviously I've got four weapon points on mine, and I use two of them for a gimbaled pulse uh, lasers to take down shields, and then I follow that up with the uh, the armor-piercing, the AP cannons, which obviously don't overheat and don't run out. So, yeah, that's the one that's working the best for me so far. I have messed around with some others, but things like the the beam lasers i just find you know when you've got lots of those on it just takes down the you know, it takes down the uh, the energy level far too quickly even if you've got all of your power diverted into weapons presumably the gimbaled weapons are essential for targeting subsystems i can bring the the hull down fine but in terms of hitting specific components i really not not only have i not managed to do it i'm not really totally clear on what part of the targeting reticule is aiming at the subsystem. So presumably the, the automation of a gimbal weapon helps you hit those things a bit more accurately. It does, but I also think it's been nerfed slightly in um, 3.4. It doesn't seem to be as easy to uh, target and take down subsystems as it was in the previous uh, build release. From my uh, playtesting, I seem to find it harder to take down you know, the likes of power distribution or the or the weapon systems, which is what I used to do in 3.3. Uh, okay, uh, moving on to Exagonite, who says, does the Lave radio team think that there will be any impact on the Elite Dangerous Equilibrium when alpha backers and beta backers eventually join up and test the software together. John? I dare say there's going to be a slight skill discrepancy, but I, I don't think it's going to take the beta players long to catch up, especially given 
that they do now have access, or the premium betas do have access to um, um, at least the combat, the single-player combat, so they can hone their skills to some degree. Yeah, I think, as, as we said previously, that we've already seen quite a nice community feeling where people are giving advice, you know, from, from the previous alpha to the new beta guys. And I think, and I'm hoping that we'll see that carry on into the, the, the proper beta and uh, and even into the wider game release, you know, when we get people coming in that haven't been part of the community, hopefully we'll see that continue. I, I don't think you'll see as much of an impact now as you will when the game is finally released, because at the end of the day, these people are still backers. And they're still invested in, you know, the game and making it a success. I think where we'll see the biggest change to the equilibrium is when people just come to Elite Dangerous as a as a commodity that sits on their shelf, you know, alongside Call of Duty and, and all the other things they play. I think I think once you see gamers coming into it that don't have the level of investment we do, that's that's when you'll see the equilibrium challenged. Okay, well, that's it for community corner questions. Uh, I think probably a good point now to actually go on and talk about our community event, that of LaveCon 2014. This is coming together quite nicely. Alan, fill us in. Well, we've got the agreement from Frontier in relation to licenses at the event, so there will be an opportunity to exclusively um, have a go on whatever the build is of Elite Dangerous at the time of the 5th of July. This is obviously, we'll be, you know, we'll be setting up PCs and we'll be setting up uh, an infrastructure there so that people can come in have a play uh, see what the game's like and uh, and really enjoy it we've also got a panel of the galance authors and galance editor marcus gibbs we've got dan grubb we've got the fantastic books authors we've got the elite role-playing game we've got all sorts really and we're also hoping to have a whole room dedicated to playing the newly released crowdsource fund or newly successful crowdsource fund chaos reborn the prototype hopefully will be at the event that we'll be playing a few games of there are board game areas there are war game areas there will be prizes for some of these things as well one of the the key things for elite dangerous there will be a jousting tournament on the sunday so um one-to-one head-to-head dogfighting will be going on on the sunday which will be very interesting we've also got street pass and the the uh nintendo ds uh, people coming down so yeah it's it's shaping up to be a, a really sort of involved event and you'll be seeing a few of us there in different types of costume which should be nice <laughs> i think it's fair to say that uh there are a few members of the frontier developments team uh looking at their diaries and trying to free up we've got quite a lot of interest from various people on the development team that want to come down but just at the moment they need to try and figure out exactly where they are with the development of the game first and foremost but we should see a number of people from frontier at the event as well absolutely we're arranging with the venue the ticket sales system. So what will happen is that on the Lave Radio website, on the LaveCon page, you'll be able to go there and you'll be able to purchase your tickets directly from there. Now, the way in which the tickets are structured is the um, the majority of events are based on the main ticket price. And then some of the subsidiary events have small purchases that are on top of them. So, you know, if you want to, to be involved in a particular activity, then you, you pay a little bit more in relation to what's there. Um, all those prices will be released when the ticket information is released. So that um, that will happen and uh, and be sorted out. Um, food and drink. Now, the, the venue has a licensed bar, several licensed bars, in fact. And also they'll be providing certain amounts of food at, uh, at the, the event. So, you know, you really want to, to just come down, bring the stuff that you want to bring and um get and enjoy it as uh, as much as you can and um yeah you know take advantage of the facilities uh and see uh, how great it is to be amongst people who are just as interested in the computer game as you are great stuff well i think that's going to wrap it up for this episode just a quick couple of shout outs uh social media come and join us on facebook and twitter 
We promise not to spam you. Frontier Developments, uh, they're doing their first live stream of Elite Dangerous tomorrow. You can check out their Twitch TV channel, uh, which is twitch.tv forward slash Elite Dangerous. Uh, some of the devs are going to be on there answering some questions which have been put to them by the community. Obviously, by the time you're listening to this, it will have already happened, but hopefully there will be a <laughs> recording of the uh, of the evening. We'll certainly be there looking at uh, some of the devs play and see whether or not their skills are as mad as ours. There's one more. Just recently, literally, I think it was yesterday, no, it was two days ago, released on the Fan Creations Forum. Lobster has put up a fictional news feed based on Alpha, Beta, and Gamma events. Uh, he set that up on Tumblr. Um, I've taken a look tonight. It's brilliant. Absolutely. Go check it out. Centaurin Herald at Tumblr.com. Very clever. And it really sort of harks back to the Frontier First Encounters journals. Very clever. Okay, well, that's it for this show. If you'd like to contact us, you can at info at laveradio.com, on Twitter at laveradio, on Facebook forward slash laveradio, and if you'd like to call us on Skype and leave us a voice message, you can at lave.radio. If you'd like to join the Elite Dangerous Skype chat channel where there is more than 50 players currently chatting away, uh, you just need to add Fozzo 101 to your Skype contacts. And finally, because you've been asking for them since episode one, you can now find the show notes at laveradio.com forward slash show forward slash 29. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Is your life I'm going to see the galaxy. Okay, so Elite News, and the main Elite News this week has to be the arrival of the beta uh, backers into the universe of Elite Dangerous, the beta batter... (laughs) (laughs) Great stuff, and when can we expect to... Oh, I'm eating chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> you know I've listened to a lot of recording recently. Uh, I can tell someone's voice is off. Thank you. <laughs> I honestly thought you were going to talk for longer. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. I think I'm forgetting for the pizza. <laughs>
<laughs> I love the fact that he stopped halfway through. <laughs> great. <laughs> Still eating tofu. Okay. <laughs> something, something a bit more generic, because because actually he does talk a little bit about um, EA's pricing models. So you know maybe we could just have something a bit more about you know different. Uh, different funding models. Okay, okay cool. Would that be all right? I, I think I think we should do an Alan Partridge style interview where it says, uh, "Bang! Someone spent a hundred pounds on something you don't agree with. You take them out to a field and you shoot them. Is that what you do? <laughs> That's very much the attitude of my next guest." <laughs> <laughs> can you can you save that for for the comments afterwards? Just let's go to the blue <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah, that's absolutely. fine. In yeah, fairness, we all have things. I mean, I think that anyone who'd pay pound fifty for a text to vote on Britain's Got Talent is a fucking... <laughs> 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 <laughs>